Hello. Hello. Okay, so if you're ready to roll, I guess we can get rolling. I am. I'm ready. All right. I'm ready. Listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Whoopi Goldberg on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. I believe the fourth episode of the twelfth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight we will be continuing our unplanned but de facto Black History Month shows. We've got a trilogy of these. This one is one that nobody expected. If you get a little gassy, you gotta let it go. Karen Elaine Johnson, professionally bearing the nickname of Whoopi because she used to fart a lot, I shit you not, pun very much intended, was born in the Manhattan Projects all the way back in 1955 to a nurse and a Baptist preacher. Apparently this good religious man, like pretty much everyone I've ever met, walked out and left her to be raised by a single mom. Swell guy. Yeah, I'm sure God wanted that one. Herschel Walker Jr. Uh, details are sketchy as to her chosen surname, as she's in fact claimed to be a mostly non-observant Jew, but some biographers trace her ancestry recently and deny it. I have no idea. Look, Sammy converted, so why not? Does it really matter? Whoopi apparently was a Trekkie from back when it was on air, and supposedly told Michelle Nichols back that when she first discovered the show, yelled to her mom, Look, there's a black lady on TV, and she ain't no maid! Diehard Trekkies know that she's had a recurring, if generally uncredited, cameo in several Next Generation shows and films as a barkeep named Guinan. She's had a number of weird jobs before making it in stand-up, including making up corpses for viewings at a funeral home, and being a bricklayer, if you can believe that. Her stand-up was always kind of strange because she pulled a Carol Burnett slash Tracy Ullman thing where she does different characters and outfits. It's never the usual get up there and sling jokes. Thankfully, she was quickly picked up by the generally detestable Steven Spielberg to star in his first attempt at Chinwood's list relevance, The Color Purple, which kicked off a long career in film. She's also been the main host of The View since Rosie O'Donnell left or got kicked off 15 years ago, and has of late started dropping several documentaries, generally, though not exclusively, relating to black figures in history and entertainment. So, before we get rolling, is there anything that you want to say? First off, I didn't greet you today. <laughs> Hello, Lewis. Yeah, because you've been talking to me for 45 minutes. That's <laughs> why, yeah, and it's been a hell of a we week. We know so. that's going to get excised, otherwise we'll be arrested. <laughs> well, some of it will. <laughs> no, I, I, this is actually your idea. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, after you had mentioned some other ones, you brought up Eddie and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have never thought it would be Goldberg. You just <laughs> put that out me, and I'm like, all right. That's why I'm pushing for Liam Neeson in the, in the, in the coming up. Um, <laughs> Liam that came to me. I'm like, God, I like a lot of his movies. I'd have to look into so, it. Uh, yeah, he's not black, though, but... You know, <laughs> uh, not that we know of. <laughs> not that, it's not that we know, but he's got a deep fucking voice. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, did I ever tell you that we used to get a lot of hate over at Ed Eye Level because that was originally Matt's show, and Matt is you know he was promotes himself as the fat guy with glasses. I don't know, I don't think he's that fat, but you know he's a hefty guy, yeah. and uh, he's got a booming deep voice, a big radio voice like this, you know. And like people, yeah, people yeah. listened and thought he was black, so they looked thought they were listening to some guy who was like you know a crazy lefty and this black guy. I'm like, 
well, okay, but no. <laughs> what are you talking about, about white dudes? <laughs> so, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, and hello to you. And, uh, <laughs> so, no, this is, uh, yeah, this was uh, something you've been watching some of these. And, uh, Quite a few, like, actually. That's why I suggested it. <laughs> I was a little hesitant, but I was like, yeah, what the fuck? Why not? You know, let's just do it. I'm sure some of these I saw you didn't, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. Uh, Probably the first 10 years or so, I'm sure we saw a lot of these, yeah. uh, including your detestable director. Yes. I'm going to force you to do Steven Spielberg. Oh, my like God. Mal- that would be a good like point. Like Michael McDowell. I'm going to tie you in enlarge your fucking eyes so you in a chair. You know, make you do that. Who else? Martin Scorsese. And as we'll get to when we start talking to Wesley Snipes, Spike fucking Lee. The three people I hate most in directorial circles. Well, well <laughs> I think Marty, you might have more fun with. That's true. Of the three of them, he would probably be the most enjoyable. Why do you the most enjoyable? I can point to some really good. I I can't tell you how many times I watched uh, Goodfellas. Just so much good shit. Anyway, we're talking about Whoopi. I've tonight. seen all those films, but you know I just don't care for them. But anyway, yeah, yeah go ahead. We're talking about Whoopi tonight. So. Okay, didn't mean to cut you off there. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so uh, 1982, she did something called Citizen. I'm not losing my mind. I'm giving it away. I have no idea what that was. It's probably an indie little short or something. No, what that what that was was um, she was doing a woman one. Sorry, folks. There, she was doing a one woman show off Broadway and then moved to on Broadway. And some filmmakers saw her doing this. She would do various, like you said, she was doing something that was kind of uh, uh, popular at the time. Uh, comedians, actresses doing different ethnographic uh, areas and, um, you know, just portraying different people from all walks of life. And Mike Nichols was one of the people who actually saw her do this a number of times, and uh, he really enjoyed her show. So the film version of that, I'm not losing my mind, I'm giving it away, I think it was like a film version of her, a couple of her original one-woman shows this is from the early 80s. So uh, there's that. She was very popular on the on the off-Broadway off circuit. The, the, you know, she, she told it like it was when she, you know, when you saw Eddie Murphy do Raw, we did an Eddie Murphy show recently, Eddie Murphy Delirious, he touched upon some of the stuff he did pre-Saturday Night Live, which, you know, the raw stand-up comedian circuit, you know, and there's a lot of women comedians who who do this kind of stuff, and, you know, people go to see the guys, but the women are really pretty crazy, too. So that's where that comes from. Actually, another view connection, Joy Behar, I remember before she ever showed up on there, mm. I always liked her as a stand-up comedian back in the 80s. So I thought she was hilarious. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of women out there that used to do this stuff. Some of them I couldn't stand, like Paula Poundstone or whatever. But, yeah, it's definitely a thing and was a thing. So good for them. Anyway, so the first film that she actually got taken on for, obviously, was Spielberg for The Color Purple. Mm. Oy vey. The first attempt at making a... Did you watch it? Yes, I did. Bless your heart, motherfucker. (laughs) See? The first attempt at making a, quote, meaningful film from kid-friendly Hollywood hack Steven Spielberg, who struck gold early on with Jaws and has delivered a series of strangely beloved but intellectually and cinematically bereft drack ever since. (sighs) If there are two directors we can credit with establishing the Hollywood churn-em-out machine that destroyed the independence and drive-in circuits by the early to mid-80s, he and the brain-dead George Lucas are it. In this depressing roots-light melodrama, we follow the hard lives of black women down south, 
This time not working our way forward from the days of slavery, but starting in the early 20th century where poor sharecropping families and free men relegate their female progeny to arranged marriages to much older abusive men, most saliently Danny Glover of Predator 2 in Lethal Weapon. Our main protagonist, who grows up to be Whoopi Goldberg, eventually meets the guy's longtime mistress, a juke joint singer who's fallen ill. As she gets nursed back to health by our beleaguered heroine, the two plan to head out of state, but the old wife beater manages to catch them and foil the plan. Another girl, junk novel huckster and talk show host Oprah Winfrey, who married his son by another mother, talks back to a nasty white bitch and winds up in jail for several years. She gets out but is forced to work as a maid to the woman in question as a condition of her parole. Things keep getting worse and worse, including separation from children and a whole lot of misery, beatings, and abuse until everyone gets reunited for a, quote, happy ending. Yeesh. Others in the cast include Tommy Chung's daughter Ray Dawn of Commando from our Arnold Schwarzenegger show, and Lawrence Fishburne of Death Wish 2 from our Bronson show, Red Heat also from our Arnold show, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. I'm really not sure why anyone would want to subject themselves to this, other than to reaffirm that being born black in this country really sucks, especially before the civil rights movement. If you really love wrist-slitting, turgid melodramas that make you feel even shittier about life than the high cost of living and the sadly resurgent tide of fascist sociopolitics gaining a frighteningly credible stranglehold on a nation that was literally built on the principles of personal and collective freedom, equality, and empathy towards the less fortunate, you can still do a hell of a lot better for yourself by revisiting the frankly horrifying and kind of hard to sit through roots. This one isn't anywhere near that league, and comes off more like a cross between the Waltons and the Grapes of Wrath, only with a hell of a lot more domestic abuse and casual racism, both personal and institutional. I've said it many times before, but it bears repeating. Spielberg sucks. Well, I don't agree that Steven Spielberg sucks as a director overall. Well, he did Jaws. But you, it's my opinion. But, um... Yo, this came from a really powerful book by Alice Walker. And I think it was an autobiography, wasn't it? Or something, or something like, that. like that. Or not so much her, but like her, her family. And, and you know, this, is, this was later on Broadway, I think post the movie. It's got a strong cast. Yeah, it's bleak. But, you know, the pros and cons of this are you and I are not black. We don't know the black experience. And I, I would hazard to guess even up until the early 70s it was fucking tough yeah i agree and you know sometimes my wife who you know was asian and come from another country when we first got together she would ask me shit like this because i had a lot of black black friends and she was like i i don't understand this and i tried to explain it to her and trying to explain it means like you got 25 minutes <laughs> Yeah, because it's like it was terrible or raw. And, y'all, we're talking pre-Civil War. We're talking it's a lot of shit. Slavery. Not pre-Civil Rights, anyway. Might have been after Civil War. <laughs> and then Civil Rights, pre-Civil Rights, after the Civil Rights. Um, well, my wife is also Asian, and she comes with her own baggage and stories as well. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Asians you know. come with their own baggage, but my wife didn't because she comes from a totally different country. Your wife came from Canada. Well, yeah, after, because she grew up there, but the, she actually well, came she from... She grew up there, yeah. My wife came from totally and she just didn't get it. And, you know, like, you, you get t it gets tiring explaining this, and you try your best to synopsize this. And I think, I think Spielberg did a fine job as anyone trying to like get this into a package where he could present it where you're not going to run out of the fucking theater screaming. <laughs> it's a hard subject matter. Yes. You know? And 
This is the first time Whoopi Goldberg had a major role in the movie, as, as well as Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, who we, we had already uh, seen, I believe, in, in a couple of Lethal Weapon films, and Adolf Caesar. Adolf Caesar. He was that. Who was Adolf Caesar, right? All those movie trailers from the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. That voice, that man was Adolf Caesar. And if you uh, if you Googled Adolf Caesar voiceover, he was a guy who did so many trailers. You're like, they killed our family. They will come back and kill them all. He, he had that gravelly voice. I just blew out my voice doing it off. He had that gravelly voice. Nobody knew it was like this older black dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all these 42nd Street things. So anyway, back to Color Purple. It's it's of its time. It's it's. Uh, I'm glad they did it. Probably, I would say this. And uh, you can agree or disagree, but probably nobody really wanted to touch this book. I, I think so, yeah. And if it wasn't for Steven Spielberg, who had clout, yes, he did. It would be it would be a long time coming still. But I think since he said I'm going to do this, they're like, really, you did Jaws and movies that you didn't like. Uh, <laughs> that uh, e. come home. <laughs> well, there's charming aspects of that, you know. But I, I, I give him credit for pushing that he wanted to do it because I'm sure a lot of people didn't want to touch this thing. That's true. Because it's still raw. It's still a rough. You know? yeah. And it's a very hard watch because it's miserable. It's a very hard watch. If you've got any yeah. empathy in you, it's like, holy shit, really? <laughs> you admit that. Well, yeah, of course. But, I mean, it doesn't mean the film doesn't suck. It's like, why do you want to watch this? It's terrible. If you really want that experience and you want to get that, you can sit through something that's maybe even harder to watch, but at least it's a better production, which is Roots. You know, that thing's fucking amazing. It's horrible, but it's amazing. Whereas this was just, like, turgid and hallmarky. <laughs> Next, we have Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yes, nothing's improved dramatically as far as I'm concerned. And now we move on to a pseudo-spy film in the vein of the similarly light but amusing Richard Grieco vehicle, If Looks Could Kill. Whoopi is effectively a data entry clerk working internet financial transfers for a bank. True to form, the entire IT department is relegated to an open office, effective catering table setup rather than being a proper desk and office space, as if there were low-level consultants on a cattle call. Nice place. Look, it took the rest of corporate America a decade or two to catch up with them there. After being dressed down by her uptight boss for <gasps> being friendly to her clients and reps on the other end of the transaction, Seriously, God help you trying to be human rather than some fucking soulless machine. She does overtime and gets an unsolicited text from some stranger who A, talks in code, and B, goads her into solving weird puzzles and going down a dark web style rabbit hole that she succeeds at and gets some McAfee Norton baiting flashing props and symbols for on banking computers. Is she fucking crazy? Did she just get this major financial institution hacked by ransomware or grant access to remote control or some system-wide virus? The red flags are flashing madly as you watch this woman hand the keys to some unknown actor. How dumb were people back then? Anyway, it turns out she's talking to some British secret agent who's been compromised and needs extraction, despite the commies having moles in some very prominent places. As she, a private citizen, allows herself to get deeper in hot water and international intrigue and mounting gunplay, kidnappings, and murders, essentially because she has no life, the film posits, she winds up saving the guy despite getting everyone at her workplace held hostage and shot up. Also, she could get laid by some catfisher over the internet. And while it seriously looks like she'll wind up with a handsome nerdy co-worker with a well-broadcasted secret, she actually gets someone that looks a hell of a lot like Dario Argento. 
Roll credits. There are a handful of notables involved like Roscoe Lee Brown of Hitchcock's Topaz, Black Sporter's Superfly TNT, and an oft-forgotten sci-fi film I always adored, Logan's Run, as one of the head feds. Carol Kane of Dog Day Afternoon from her Al Pacino show, Annie Hall and the Mafu Cage, who I always found strangely attractive in an odd way, is her deskmate in comic relief, and he's since disgraced Stephen Collins of Tales of the Gold Monkey, is a reasonably good-looking, if nebbishy, new employee who the audience has offered as a red herring. Is he jumping Jack Flash? Sure adds up. Directed by Laverne herself, Penny Marshall, this was the first of her handful of overpraised comedies like Big and A League of Their Own, but like those, it has enough star power and genial feel to remain quite watchable, and like many of Whoopi's films we'll speak to tonight, is far better, or at least far more likable, than its reputation. It's fun for what it is. Yeah, that's the key word. It's very watch. It's extremely watched. It's more watchable than you thought it would be. Very much so. And his name is the movie's titled after a great song. So, <laughs> <laughs> Which she knew the lyrics to. That was part of how she solved the puzzle. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a thing going on there. John Wood and Carol Kane, you mentioned, and Roscoe Lee Brown. Jerome Crabb, who was enjoying a bit of a renaissance at this point. Jonathan Price, who people just aren't getting used to. And Stephen Collins from Star Trek, the motion picture. Lots of interesting faces in this. I think that's what makes it part partly fun, is that a lot of these people, you're they weren't too familiar, but you may have seen them before. And she's she's very amiable, Whoopi. She she she's very likable. It's almost like <laughs> not a great movie, but you can't help no. you, you can't help but to like it. So exactly. there was that. Is I feel almost the same about the next film. Yeah, it's actually true of a lot of her earlier films, especially. <laughs> So, Burglar, 1987. I want some peanuts. No, I was actually feeding one of the cats. That was dry food dropping into the dish. So anyway, 1987, Burglar. One of Whoopi's first films was among her strangest. Descripted by half-assed Batman writer and the man who gave us Teen Wolf, Jeff Loeb, who can't even spell his first name right, this was also one of the first live-action theatrical films, following an animated bit in the infamous Star Wars Christmas special and the weird sub-Ralph Bakshi rock and roll by Canadian cartoon company Nelvana, who also left Marvel fans dangling for a decade or more awaiting a promised X-Men cartoon. In the 70s, seriously, it was promoted in stands, soapbox, and bullpen bulletins for years and never happened. It was also intended as a Bruce Willis cop film slash murder thriller, with Whoopi having a bit part as the comic relief neighbor. When Willis dropped out, they made her the lead and turned it into one of the many SNL and even SCTV fronted cop comedies released throughout the decade. Everything from Beverly Hills Cop and 48 Hours to Running Scared, Dead Heat, Dragnet, and many more in between. It was a thing. The problem is the tone is kind of off. There's not much comedy here. And what little there is is left of the abominable, whiny crackhead Bob Goldthwaite, who ties with Sam Kinison as the single most annoying and unfunny stand-up veteran in American history. He not only starred in, but literally wrote, Shakes the Clown, I Rest My Case. Directed by a Hugh Wilson, whose claim to fame was creating WKRP in Cincinnati and directing the first Police Academy film, this mostly heavy film centers on ex-con, second story woman, Whoopi, the world's worst thief, apparently, who gets blackmailed by the cop who busted her and has to return to breaking and entering to pay him off. She somehow goes from this to playing Patsy when a lady dentist wants her to boost her estranged husband's jewels, but it winds up becoming a setup to frame her for a planned murder of the guy, which she views through a slatted closet door, which turns out to be appropriate as she wasn't the only thing closeted in this film. A minor but important character turns out to be the real perp because he was in love with the late hubby in question the whole time. Oh my. 
Beefy but generally likable John Goodman, who started in films like The Big Easy and Sea of Love, which we discussed in our Al Pacino show, would decline into regular roles in shit like The Flintstones. TV bit player Leslie Ann Warren was having a brief moment on middling, vaguely culty fare like Victor Victoria and Clue. And even beyond Goldfoot's Robotech poster and a casual flash of racism, the aforementioned Black Millen Cop, who comes out as a de facto hero at the end, actually walks in on Whoopi and greets her with the heartwarming camaraderie of, Hey there, Piccanini! Seriously. There's a very 80s soundtrack that, when not sounding like the Barge's greatest hits, hails from a Sylvester LeVay, no relation to Anton from our Satan in the 70s show, <laughs> whose, <laughs> whose sole work of note was scoring Brian Bosworth's Stone Cold. There's that What About Bob connection again. I don't know if I told you that story, but yeah, I <laughs> will later if you want. Seen as a cheesy 80s thriller cop film, it's fair enough, but as a comedy, much less a whoopee vehicle, it's just bizarre and kind of grim. What's your take on it? Yeah, I hear what you're saying because I think totally it's way off. I I think that totally it's way off. And uh, coming from the guy who did Police Academy, a couple other things, there's probably a reason why it's off. And I I think it's, you know, Lawrence Block wrote this, wrote the novel. He was known for doing like semi-hardcore crime stuff and you know they adapted that and you know well you may frank it to the cinematography by the way it's probably one of the reasons why it looks so good but (laughs) i can't lift that one down yeah it's like totally it's like (laughs) uneven and it's like yeah okay it's one of there's a couple of films that she does it's like it's trying to appeal to too many audiences at once and winds up becoming uneven but it's it's still watchable. Yeah. yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to do this, especially when we got to the point of you saying Eddie Murphy as a possibility, is she did a lot of films. Her career kind of followed that same Eddie Murphy movie trajectory. Where she... I think the next one was much better, by the yes. way. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, this was actually my favorite of these early ones. Yeah, she's hot in this one. For, <laughs> Strangely for... enough, yes. Yes, so... yes, see? <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg is hot. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> Fatal Beauty, 1987. Very much in the vein of the sort of likable, if generally paint-by-numbers cop film comedy spawned by the breakout success of both Beverly Hills Cop and 48 Hours from our Eddie Murphy show, the excellent Billy Crystal Gregory Hines running Scared, the silly Joe Piscopo cop zombie comedy Dead Heat, or the Jeff Goldblum Michelle Pfeiffer Into the Night for just a few. <laughs> Godzilla types in. Yeah. That's it. This one was directed by Odd Choice, Fright Night, and Child's Play director, and scriptwriter for The Beast Within, Class of 1984, and Psycho 2, Tim Holland, oh. and even pinches Harold Faltemeyer, who scored the aforementioned Beverly Hills Cop in a top 40 hit with its theme, Axel F, to do the far less memorable soundtrack here. Sam Elliott of Frogs and the Legacy is her protective, if somewhat reluctant, de facto partner, but like everything in the script, it's very convoluted. Essentially, Whoopi is a vice cop with the unlikely name of Rizzoli, because, you know, she looks very Southern Italian, assigned to a drug bust detail. She's supposed to be inveigling herself into the operation of a pantomime-level, absurd, fat, and ostentatious dealer with the ridiculous real-world name of Fred Asparagus. I shit you not, that's the actor's chosen moniker. When he starts to rough up a hooker stoolie of hers, she blows her cover by stepping in. Meantime, our man Asparagus visits his crack house production facility and finds one of his naked immigrant line workers, which they actually do, so no way pockets any of the product, totally fucked up on the stuff, so all his dime bags are now high dosage. Before they can do anything about it, Chucky himself, Brad Dourif, busts in, and before he can say, what an ugly doll, fuck you, he's blown everyone away and put the contaminated shit on the street, sending off a wave of junky deaths. 
Whoopi shows up and can only identify her man asparagus by his ridiculous dress sense as his face was turned into hamburger by Dorif. Some action comedy, eh? Long story short, she susses out the head of the line trafficking in the shit, the quote fatal beauty of the title. You didn't think it was Whoopi and her missing eyebrows, did you? He puts a tail on her, who keeps acting as a de facto bodyguard and partner, but who's really there to find out who ripped him off on the original asparagus deal. The expected twist turns and shootouts ensue, and despite sort of falling for each other, Ellie gets shunted off to prison, and Whoopi says she'll wait for him. Uh, sure. <laughs> the weird soundtrack isn't limited to Faultemeyer. They pull in a real motley crew of 80s top 40 hitmakers here. Debbie Gibson, Levert, who's Casanova, appears here. Prince Protégé's The System and Shannon of Let the Music Play fame. But none of it really fits. They all feel quite extraneous and ill-fitting, drawing the viewer out of the film with their awkward insertion. It's a very flawed and exceedingly dark film, even for its type. But chances are you've seen far worse, despite its reputation and myriad failings. It's not so much the best of these early Whoopi films of this sort, but it's a lot more solid than you'd imagine from what everyone says about it. And while it comes up closer to an early Steven Seagal film than it ever does the intended Eddie Murphy-derived template, likely due to the weird choice of director more than any of the actors involved, it's by no means the shitfest it's generally painted out to be. I certainly enjoyed it. Oh, no, by far. Not, not a shitfest at all. It's a really solid action movie. Whoopi was churning out these things, and uh, well, maybe not exactly churning out these things, but people were approaching her with Jumping Jack Flash did well. They said, do you want to play detective again? So how about an Italian? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the cast is solid. Yo, it's a solid fucking movie. Oh, yeah. and, and Fatal Beauty has enough unusual shit going for it that I, I highly recommend it because – you got Whoopi Goldberg, Sam Elliott, uh, before he became whatever he is, uh, Ruben Blades, Harris Eulin, everybody knows Harris, John P. Ryan, a little fuck up, Jennifer Warren, up where we belong, <laughs> Brad Dorif, Charles Hallahan, you've been around for a lot of movies, Celeste Yarnell from back in the day of Roger Corman, Vampire Flicks. There's a lot of familiar play- Jeech Marins in this as a the bartender. Yes, that's true. Before he would appear in many other movies as the bartender. Um, <laughs> it, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Be watching it for the show, saying, "I forgot how good this was." That's it. That's the first one that I saw that I was like, you know what? Let me see some more of these. And I started watching Jumping Jack Flash. I'm like, wow, that's really good too. It's even better, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And then I saw really Burglar. I was like, oh, okay, but it's not bad. And then you know, one after the other, I'm like, let's do a Whoopi show. <laughs> and then. Whoopi would do weird shit like the telephone. Yeah, I did not see the telephone, Clara's Heart, or uh, Beverly Hills Bratz, which is a cameo okay. anyway. So. so telephones by Rip Torn, y'all. Rip Torn is this notorious New York City actor, producer, director, writer who's done lots of weird shit, y'all. He was uh, he was the man who felt the earth, and he had this really weird part in that. He was in coma. Which we spoke about. Yeah, we did uh, Man Who Fell to Earth in our For Those Who Fall on show, because we were talking about Bowie and his films as well. And then, right. uh, of course, we did a Michael Creighton show about Coma. did the Michael Creighton show. Yeah, and Rip and, and, and Torn had a bit, a bit of an odd career, and he would sometimes party hard with some motherfuckers. So, at, at, apparently, at this point in time, he partied hard with Terry Seldon, who wrote Candy. Amongst other films, and Harry Nilsson, who John Lennon buddy, who was a big thing for a while, a real um, M.O.R. songwriter in the '70s and early '80s. Right, right. Yo, he wrote the huge hit "Without You," but the even more memorable "You're Fucking It Up," "I Hate You," whatever that fucking song. 
Oh, the Fuck You song, yes, which, which actually got released. Wow. Amazing. And so this thing is like, so, yeah, Whoopi was still traveling in circles where she was working with her uh, theatrical group of people, of friends, you know, Terry Southern, Candy, and other shit, and Harry Nielsen, you know, working with Lennon and being an acclaimed alcoholic. <laughs> acclaimed, I say. <laughs> And, and yeah, you know, he so was there for the lost weekend. Anybody who knows Lennon's history, he was. He was there for the lost weekend. And if you ever want to hear something really strange, the Pussycats album. Um, so I guess Rip Torn said, "Well, how about you and Saren Darden from Battleful Planet of the Apes, the worst one? Elliot Gould, one of our favorites. We did a show on him. John Hurd and her villages. Yes, thank God. <laughs> Dave Boss Plane. <laughs> get together and would do like a pseudo kind of like we'll do it off the cuff kind of thing based on real time. So Whoopi's in an apartment with a goldfish bowl and an owl <laughs> and people call her up on the phone and she calls other people up and then people complain to her and they, they're like unstable. And this was a huge fucking mistake <laughs> because after having done a couple of films that were like, hey, y'all, this actress who was in The Color Purple has done some action movies and we're thinking her in an entirely different light. She does this weird fucking... <laughs> it was weird. Nobody liked it. It did zilch and very, very little. Clara's heart. Did you see that? No, it's a drama. I know that, but I did not see it. Yeah, it was a drama by Robert Mulligan, who has a pretty... Wrong CB. No relation to Richard Mulligan, the, the comedian, right? <laughs> no, I don't know. Because I remember he was a lot of shitty TV comedies in the early 80s. Well, except for Soap. Soap was much. It, it's a strange romantic melodrama. I haven't seen it in many years, and no, I did not revisit it for the show. Speaking of strange romantic melodramas, <laughs> 1990, Ghost. Yes. The incredibly annoying, oversmoked voice and somewhat off her rocker, but undeniably hot looking Demi Moore, who we discussed in our Michael Crichton show. The guy. Who we discussed in our Michael Crichton show for her disturbingly realistic role as a ball crushing, scheming exec who throws a frivolous sexual harassment suit at perpetual beta male Michael Douglas. And also of classics like Full Moon's Parasite from our Full Moon Pictures show, the awful old men chasing teenage women stinker Blame It on Rio from our Michael Caine show, and the overrated downbeat yuppie Brad Pack turd St. Elmo's Fire is paired with the late Patrick Swayze of the hilarious jingoist fear-mongering Red Dawn, Dirty Dancing, for which he also recorded a tone-deaf top 40 atrocious ballad, She's Like the Wind, and drag show favorite to Wong Fu, which we'll talk in our Wizard's Life show, actually, as a luckless investment banker who stumbles upon some cookbooks and winds up dead for it, and memorable Tomorrow Never Dies batting Vincent Chiavelli from our trio of Bond film shows. Whoopi Goes to Town is an over-the-top psychic and con artist who winds up as a medium for Swayze. They solve the money laundering case, and in true shadow old-time radio fashion, the baddie causes his own demise, and even gets dragged off to hell for his efforts. Cue happy ending. Roll credits. This film hailed from the bizarre and unexpected hand of broad slapstick comedy man Jerry Zucker, who'd reappear in Whoopi's career a decade later for the scavenger hunt knockoff Rat Race, but remains far better known for films like Kentucky Fried Movie, Airplane, and The Naked Gun, and this lone anomaly in his filmography. Well, there was also the pathetic Sean Connery Richard Gere bomb first night, but nobody cared about that one. Strangely well-remembered for its, quote, romantic conceit of love that transcends death and Moore's horrible little boy's haircut, this one's very much what they used to call a, quote, woman's film. 
film. You know, stuff like Beaches or Moonstruck, designed to cynically stoke the tear ducts and warm the hearts of romantic young ladies raised on Harlequin novels, Fabio Bedeck trashy romance paperbacks. I don't think to this day there's a heterosexual man alive who thinks anything whatsoever of this film, and odds are extremely skewed towards their only having seen it, if ever, on date night with their girlfriend or their wife's suggestion. It's not awful on its own merits, but nah, not my thing and probably not yours either, guys. <laughs> What's your take? You didn't cry when they had that Righteous Brothers song playing? <laughs> I, no, I didn't. I fucking <laughs> flooded tears. <laughs> you like beaches too? <laughs> I do. I like beaches too. There you go. No, I. Didn't. You're sensitive, Mel. Still fucking hurt. No, and, you know Patrick Swayze. Uh, we can we can talk about him another time. And, and he'll come up in the next show. And Demi Moore, you know, it's 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 kind of hard to describe this thing. It's like you have a, a love and it's lost, and you want to regain it. I get it. But at the same time, personally, I think it's a very sweet film. Oh, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be, yeah. But a, I, I think it's a very sweet film. And then and for our sensitive meals. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's a fine movie. And, and Whoopi is, is fine in the, in the part oh, that yeah. she plays. So, you know, I can't say anything bad about Ghost. Sorry. So, 1991, Soap Dish. A Michael Hoffman of no notable credits drops this sorry satire of daytime soap opera on an unsuspecting public. Sally Field of the Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, from our Burt Reynolds and Michael Caine shows, is the lead actress about to be bumped by scheming Kathy Moriarty of the John Belushi Neighbors. And I said here, maybe we should do a Belushi show. He was surprisingly decent outside of more typecast roles. Yes. And we're actually going to do one. So, it's coming up soon. And Kindergarten Cop from our Arnold Schwarzenegger show, who's banging the producer, Iron Man himself, and co-star of Tough Turf, Robert Downey Jr. They build a plot where she becomes unpopular with viewers for killing a deaf orphan just introduced into the show, Elizabeth Shue of The Karate Kid and Back to the Future 2, so they can boot her from the show. But it backfires when Field discovers she's a real-life bastard daughter, which gives the show and her ratings a boost. And her a ratings boost, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me reread that line. Yeah, you, you could be taken another way, you know. <laughs> Yes, that's true. Being a soap opera, things keep getting stupider and more complicated as they bring back long-absent character and former field off-screen ex, the annoying Kevin Klein of no notable credits. It just gets worse from here. Anyone who's ever sat through one of these things, even the entertaining Dark Shadows, knows just how ridiculous things can get, both with the writing and offset. But the medium is so intrinsically asinine, does it really need to be satirized? And do satires of soaps ever really work? The answer is no. I hate to ruin the memories of older fans who grew up on Mary Hartman, which voiced the irritating Louise Lasser around the world, or Soap, which kicked off the questionable career of Billy Crystal. Other folks you may know pass through, like Hocus Pocus and Sister Act's Kathy Najimy, Terry Hatcher of Tango and Cash and Tomorrow Never Dies from our Stallone and Trio of Bond shows, Under the Rainbow and Hollywood Vice Squad's Carrie Fisher, and crazy right-wing headcase Ben Stein of Ferris Bueller fame. Whoopi, she's the head writer and confident on a field who rebels against some of the forced plot twists Downey's trying to put into the show. She gets a few scenes, but not enough to justify wasting your time on this unfunny crap. Oh, it's uh, it's it's quite fine. Um, hold on, I'm just looking at something. Forgive me, you're gonna have to edit this. You know, like the uh, guy from Chiller just posted my schedule, and I hate this man. I'm helping you out, and you fucking let me know we have to post it. <laughs> hey, if you want to see something really strange, people, come out to Chiller Theater for Bud and Lou Abbott and Costello impersonators. What? Yes, they're doing two shows. 
Wow. And, and God <laughs> bless you if you happen to sit through these fucking. I, yeah, I was gonna say how like desperate are they getting for guests here? That's kind of like what's next? Elvis impersonators? <laughs> I never heard of them. And there's a story I could tell you about it offline. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this movie is another problematic picture in. We have Robert Downey Jr. around the period where he's been having some issues with government, drugs, <laughs> etc. Sally Field is having issues with Burt Reynolds, and uh, Kevin Klein's having issues with everybody, including uh, what was it Phoebe Phoebe Cates is much much younger, and you know Kathy Moriarty who's trying to find a career after. Being the really downer picture, Raging Bull, is a, it's a Carrie Fisher. Yeah, we know. There's a lot of people in this movie, and I just couldn't find the tonality of this. It's funny that Whoopi Goldberg would be in a lot of pictures that were tonality-wise fucking weird. You you didn't know where you were. Sister Act. So next up, 1992 and 93, because we'll do them together. Sister Act and Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Harvey Keitel, sleazy guy creeping on Farrah Fawcett in Saturn 3 and jacking his rather tiny pecker in the bed lieutenant, is the mobster boyfriend of lounge show Diana Ross impersonator Whoopi, who comes gunning for her after she informs on him gunning down a school pigeon in front of her. Witness protection, including Bill Nunn of Canadian Bacon, sets her up as a novitiate in a rundown Frisco convent and church similar to the one from the Blues Brothers. Joseph Mayer of Time After Time, Under the Rainbow, and Evil That Men Do from our Charles Bronson show is the Monsignor who wants her there for a kickback from the feds, while crusty Maggie Smith of Murder by Death and Clash of the Titans is the crusty Mother Superior who doesn't want her there. Sigmund and the Sea Monster's snarky Mary Wicks and Hocus Pocus's goofy Kathy Najimy are two of the nuns who warm to the streetwise whoopee and her turning their hoary old hymnal into a Motown gospel review, which of course garners media attention and brings new visitors to mass there, thereby saving the bankrupt parish from closure. In the end, all is well. This is one of those silly little Hallmark card love letters to conservative America that everyone praises the high heaven for its lighthearted flirtation with quote naughtiness and barely poking fun at Midwestern sacred cows, in this case the many failed and absurdities of the Catholic Church, but it's also stupid and warm-hearted. It's both easily avoidable and ultimately fairly inoffensive if you're forced to sit through it by family and loved ones, which happened to me twice in life. It's nothing to slam too hard, no. But is it really funny? Please. There was an even lesser sequel released in the subsequent year where Whoopi, having long since gone back to the real world, is roped back into helping the same group of nuns to save a failing Catholic school by running its music program and getting its schoolgirl choir to win a competition, despite one girl's skank mother with a past irrationally refusing to let her daughter follow suit by encouraging her interest in a singing career like she had had. You're supposed to feel sympathetic for this stupid, mean-spirited bitch, as if her failure at life means anyone else would necessarily have the same results. Fuck you, lady. Family sucks. Make your own family. Blood ain't thicker than shit. Don't be trapped by assholes and precedent. Even if you really enjoyed the original, and admittedly, it's amusing enough if you lower expectations accordingly, chances are you'll find this one a serious letdown in every respect. Sequelitis hits this one hard. And just to make the fear more palpable, she's actually working on a third sequel as we speak. Heaven help us. Well, that sister act was fine. It's, uh, you know... It's okay for what it is. It's definitely watchable. It's okay for what it is. Uh, it's very safe. You know, you mentioned Harvey Keitel. You said something weird about me. It's like a thick dick. I don't know what Don't you, you remember the bad about. lieutenant? That was the whole joke. Everyone was laughing about that. I was like, really? That's all he's got? <laughs> yeah, but thick, man. It's like, it's like fucking, like, four inches thick. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how big he is. It's like... 
he, he can go up to the girl like that. No, you're gonna you're gonna stretch me out. Um, so. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Um, if you saw Bad Lieutenant, you know why we're going on about this. <laughs> yes, I I thought it was it was. <laughs> I thought sister. <laughs> I thought sister act was cute. And the second one was fine, and. The first one's better. Yeah, by course. far. <laughs> by far. And, and you know, it was so much fun. They actually had an off-Broadway or Broadway version of it where they did those, reenacted those uh, old songs, you know. So, yeah, I, it, I had no issue with it, really. I, I don't know what to say about it, good or bad. So, uh, 1993, The Player. Blowhard wannabe Howard Hawks without the talent Robert Altman, whose only <laughs> worthwhile film was The Long Goodbye from Elliot Gould and Philip Marlowe shows, drops another smoking green turd on our last with this amusingly criterion release bomb, proving by example just how far their standards have been falling of late. Annoying Tim Robbins of Howard the Duck and Twister from our Michael Creighton show is one of those asshole middle management types in Hollywood who rejects tens of thousands of script submissions a year, faced with being forced out in favor of a new up-and-comer and simultaneously getting poisoned pen letter threats. He chases down a jilted screenwriter that he assumes is the party in question and murders him in front of a wall full of paste-ups advertising Skid Row and post-jump-the-shark Megadeth just to show exactly when this one was lensed. You ran over your head. That's why you're losing your job. And then what are you going to do? I can write. What can you do? Robbins gets an obvious bomb of a script from Spice World's apoplectic manager, Richard E. Grant, which he tries to get his rival to push through, then hoping it will tank and remove the competition. As internal politics shift, Robbins flips on his plan and tacks on a star-studded happy ending that makes the film a big hit. The poison pen letter writer sends him a pitch showing he knows about the murder and that he married the guy's widow to boot, which he accepts so long as his character gets away with it and has a happy ending. And guess what? That's the script for the film you just sat through. Oh, ho, ho. How clever. What a laugh on old Hollywood and its weird machinery and operation. Please. You want to see a great movie about movie making? Do yourself a favor and check out Truffaut's Day for Night, which we discussed in our Jackie Bissett show. You want a funny, biting one? Check out an obscurity called End God Spoke, where two nebbishes try to make a big Cecil B. DeMille-style Bible film on no budget. Or even the Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy Bowfinger from our show on Eddie. Avoid Altman films like The Plague, unless you're talking Long Goodbye. Whoopi, she's in this for one scene as the disinterested detective investigating the murder. Skip it. Do yourself a favor. Well, the best Altman film to see is Nashville, in my my opinion. Oh, boy, you like that? Yeah. Everybody loves that. That's terrific. Anyway, so, great cast. Tim Robbins, Fred Ward, Peter... Remember Peter Gallagher? Is he still alive? (laughs) Peter Gallagher, Brian James, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who is now Kingpin, the late Dean Stockwell, late Sidney Pollock. I love it. Gina Gershon. I mean, Scott Glenn, before he was a dick. (laughs) Bruce Willis before aphasia, Julia Roberts, <laughs> Patrick Swayze before death. I mean, there's so many good people. Before aphasia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the player is, I actually saw this in a theater, and, and, and it's, while you want it to be so much better than it is, it's not. No. Sometimes Robert Altman would, would create these, movies that were so complex and they were they were in a way so much what's that Elliot Gould film we really love The Long the, Goodbye uh, The Long Goodbye yeah that's a great one from him yeah so it's the only one I like <laughs> and it, it was like so much an homage to The Long Goodbye let's let's try to recreate this mm-hmm. and it just doesn't work 
Yeah, he's got so many. Altman's style is he brings in like a billion characters, and he has all the stories running at once, and people will talk over each other, and there's a lot of asides. And I guess if you're really pedantic, you might be like, oh, look, look what's happening in this scene. Did you miss that? Oh, that foreshadows this. But the end result is just like, why do I watch this thing? <laughs> it sucks. So that's why I can't stand them. But I understand what that is and where people find an appeal in his stuff. Anyway. Oh. I, as I said, I really love Nashville from him, so there's that. So where are we going next? All right, so I jump up a couple of years uh, past, she was in a documentary, she was in something called Serafina. It's actually to Naked in New York, believe it or not. That was 93. It's actually a bit part of it. She was naked? Okay. No. So uh, 1993, Naked in New York, she's the tragedy mask on a theater wall. We spoke to this starfucker cameo-filled stinker, executive produced by Martin Scorsese, yet in our Tony Curtis show. Tony is the acerbic agent of a flop-off-Broadway playwright, doofy Eric Stoltz of Basque and Killing Zoe, who oddly enough has a relationship with a female, boring Irish girl next door of Mary Louise Parker of no notable credits, through his close pal Ralph Macchio of The Karate Kid, is bisexual, and he hails from a house without a father figure. Sure, I believe he's straight. What's next, is he a huge Babs fan? Of course, his only distaff relationship outside of his dominant mother, quote, decides to break it off because their career paths are different, unquote. <clears throat> anyway, this piece of self-absorbed metrosexual horseshit is marketed as a rom-com without the rom and with precious little calm. <laughs> Whoopi is among many celebs of the day, inclusive of the recently disgraced Chris Noth, who cameo in her case as much akin to Peter Davison in Hitchhiker's Guide, but without the humor, a theatrical mask of tragedy hanging on the wall. Oh, ho, ho, what a ripper. It's a ripper, all right, and you want to light a whole patch of matches to remove the stench. Thanks, Martin Scorsese. That's another thing you owe the world for making us suffer through, you little shit. <laughs> So I don't know if you remember it from the Tony Curtis show, so I can just go on if you don't. No, stop now. <laughs> All right, so uh, <laughs> next up, ninth uh, senior. Oh, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, sorry. No, because cause Martin Scorsese didn't direct this, but... No, he executive produced it. He executive produced it. Yeah. He's got a... I mean, if, if you didn't see the movie, it has an amazing cast. Eric Stoltz. Pre or post, what was that thing where we played this figured fucking... Mask. Mask. M Mary Louise Parker from something. Yeah, nothing I care about. <laughs> Ralph Macchio from Karate Kid, until he became Karate Kid again. His <laughs> only big role than my cousin Vinny. Uh, Duke Leiberg, Tony Curtis, our hero. Timothy Dalton, the one and only Bond. Roscoe Lee Brown, we spoke of many times. Chris North before disgrace and you know what i the jury's still out on that bling camp and and david johansson from the new york dolls come on fucker <laughs> what a kiss what a kiss this sucks it's mostly cameos yeah and it sucks yeah, it right. sucks so <laughs> i i don't know what to think of this but you know you get to the point where if you're living in new york and and, and whoopi was and probably still is and you're hanging out with people and they want to make a movie and somebody else has got more money than the other guys hey but it's a small part but you're in a movie with like 42 other people who have names like okay and you know you, you just do this picture and the whole world gets puzzled because it comes out and you're like what is this yeah so, it was kind of like uh, paul simon wound up in any hall on the party scene like okay i guess they just bumped in them somewhere and said sure why not <laughs> i'm in any hall really seriously yeah, I'm in Annie Hall because they shot Annie Hall in Coney Island, mm -hmm. and I'm in I'm in three outdoor scenes. <laughs> and I'll have I to was take a look. Seventy six, right? Yeah, I know what you look like. So I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so it's fourteen, sixteen years old. 
Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Where are we going next? i got to rewatch that one now. Uh, so, it's a good film anyway. So, uh, 93 also, Made in America. Our man Richard Benjamin of Quark, Scavenger Hunt, and Westworld for our Michael Crichton show, and by the way, we will be doing a Richard Benjamin show shortly, directs this odd, often cringe-inducing oddity, more famed for how it led to a few high-profile media matters for its leads than its own questionable merits. Whoopi is a pissed-off widow running a black-themed bookstore and curio shop. One of the few genuinely amusing running gags involves two clueless old white women who pander to her and wind up locked in the store overnight, only to come out dressed in dashikis and, quote, understanding the struggle in true bleeding-heart culturally appropriative style. Gee, I know someone like that. Hello, Mom. She's got a chip on her shoulder like you wouldn't believe, and a weird abrasive daughter, Nia Long, of Boys in the Hood and One Season of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, who's a test tube baby obsessed with finding her real father. Apparently, after Hubby passed on, Whoopi decided to hit up a sperm bank for a random donor to raise a kid as a single mother. Great plan. Oh, and by the way, the picture that they keep showing of the deceased father is O.J. Simpson. <laughs> anyway, being a comedy, she did no research, and the sperm bank fucked up. So instead of giving her a, quote, smart black man, as if they know the IQ of one of the hard-up perverts who go there to whack off for a few bucks cash, her father's actually a real cracker, a boozy expat cowboy come car salesman who runs ridiculous cable TV ads involving circus animals, namely Cheers Ted Danson. So the expected happens with angry Afrocentric neo-panther Whoopi first fighting tooth and nail with her de facto baby papa, then screwing up his life a bit. Her terrible bike riding and kitty bike horn caused the circus elephant he's filming for his latest ad to rampage through town while beast style. But rather than incurring the wrath of the ASPCA and animal rights activists, lawsuits, and arrests for all the damage caused, this actually bumps his many a presence enough that his entire lot sells out. Thanks, crazy lady. Danson starts trying to build a relationship with his newfound daughter and finds even this angry, crazy black woman more appealing than his dim bulb, cheating L.A flake of a girlfriend, a young and still body con Jennifer Tilly, whatever happened to her. So they wind up screwing, oddly much to the door's dismay. Hey, you wanted this guy in your life, bitch. Now you're grousing? There's the usual canned final third twist, where Whippy finally gets hit by a car for her shitty bike riding. Everyone comes together over it. Bam, happy ending. Long brought Fresh Prince co-star and the world's safest rapper Will Smith along for the ride, but he's terrible here as a nerdy longtime boyfriend who wants to be a love interest. Mugging, acting like a sissy, he's completely unlike his likely goofy Fresh Prince persona, coming off more like the incredibly annoying Urkel from Family Matters, and wasting far too much screen time with his annoying and decidedly unfunny antics. If you can believe it, this is the film that kicked off his movie career, more notable and retrospectively amusing for being the film that caused Ted Danson's decline and fall from grace, both in star terms, remember the infamous Friars Club blackface incident, and personal life, his year or so fucking whoopee cost him his marriage, and one of the most expensive Hollywood divorces of the era. I never really liked the guy as this smug, supposed chick magnet and former baseball player on Cheers, but he's nearly as annoying here, overplaying his role as a dumb hick out of water in L.A. Even worse than those two are sleazy, trollish Paul Rodriguez, that far right-wing fuck, whose only other notable roles were in DC Cab with Mr. T in the terrible Cheech Marin film Born in East L.A., as one of Danson's sleazy salesmen who tries to get in the pants of the equal irritating Nia Long. It's pretty terrible, but it definitely works as a camp mystery science sort of view, where you're only at to mock everyone for appearing in such a bizarre, cringy, and generally unfunny film, and dancing and whoopee for derailing the former's personal life and career besides. I mean, it's certainly watchable, but it's, you're really going to be like, oh, jeez, really? We're going there? <laughs> What's your take? You know, I, I, I couldn't catch up to this one. I, I remember I saw it so long ago. It's got an interesting cast, but I, I, I can't comment on it because I, I haven't seen it in so many years. Sorry. So much improved, 1994, The Stand. 
By all accounts, the far superior attempt at putting Stephen King's novel to television miniseries, this one, for all its flaws, holds up as the second best of any Stephen King miniseries, and The Shining Aside, which we discussed in our Stanley Kubrick show, remains the third best adaptation of any King stories ever, following the excellent Salem's Lot, which we talked in our Toby Hooper show. Director Mitt Garris, whose only credit of note among a handful of such was the cult Disney horror comedy Hocus Pocus, whose recent sequel was reviewed over at thirdeyesinema.wordpress.com, does a more than respectable job here despite a really cheesy plot twist and lame rubber mask special effects involving a Jamie Sheridan, a terrible overactor whose only notable credit is a bit part in the aforementioned Jumpin' Jack Flash. But what the hell, it's TV in early 90s TV at that. Being a sprawling, literally country-spanning tale, there are a huge number of names involved, not to mention plot twists, changes of allegiance, and even deaths along the way. The most prominent include Gary Sinise, Republican who at least refused to stand with Trump, noted for a few big films among the Midwestern Hallmark crowd, but of no real note otherwise, a surprisingly sexy Lord San Giacomo of no notable credits, cute Shawnee Smith of 80s teen sex comedy Summer School and the terrible 1988 Blob, cute but awkward star of fun Persis Combata starring a sci-fi space hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, and a series of John Hughes comedies like Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink, namely Molly Ringwald, husband and wife civil rights activists and actors Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, dorky TV sitcom actor Corin Nemec as a particularly nasty insult turncoat, Max Headroom, star of Generation X, and bit player and Supergirl Matt Frewer, my favorite Martian himself, Ray Walston, and even Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in a bit part. Even King himself, three-time Eddie Murphy collaborator John Landis, and Sam Raimi all cameo at various points. Somewhat prescient given the anthrax scare a few years back and the subsequent global COVID pandemic, this one centers on a biological warfare agent that escapes into the atmosphere, resulting in a weird post-apocalyptic America where the few survivors rally behind two opposing demagogues, the progressive and well-meaning Mother Abigail, whoopee, and an amusingly literal satanic autocracy under Randall Flagg, the aforementioned Ham Sharon. I'll just stop right there. If you can't see the direct parallels to 2022 America, you're just plugging your ears and sticking your head in the sand going, la, 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 I can't hear you. I don't see a thing. Like I said, it's sprawling and runs across several lengthy episodes, but somehow still feels too short to fit its so much epic expansiveness in. It's much better than its reputation, and I honestly think this is the best King adaptation save Salem's lot. Yo, it's a, it's a very good Stephen King adaptation. I agree with you. Probably uh, alongside same as lot the movie, it's equal. It's a, it's a big cast, but you you need a big cast. And um, I would have been more interested in what George Romero was going to do with this because he was thinking of working on this project and that didn't pan out uh, because he he does big sprawling projects. Uh, he did, and and uh, this is still pretty formidable uh, she's pretty terrific that the cast is pretty terrific uh, i i suspect at some point or another someone's gonna take another go around at this well somebody did recently but it was everybody said it was nowhere near as good as this one yeah no nowhere as good as this one yeah it, yeah i think somebody's really gonna what was special about the book it's like nobody can really it's like digging in the deep you know like what's special about this don't you know? You know? Yeah. And, you know, it's sprawling. It's big. You know, it's like uh, the book that Clay Barker did with King. That was really good, too. And that's – nobody's been able to tap that either. And uh, as more time goes by, I don't know. I mean, they, they recently rebooted Hellraiser. I'm like, why? Yeah, exactly. Why didn't you do that? Yeah, you know, I was like, we didn't even really need to. But, no, this is the stand – is quite well done, and uh, 
It's it's a really good project in her CV. Yes. So 1994, same year, The Little Rascals, where she's Buckwheat's mom. What is it with black comedians and the fucking Little Rascals anyway? Bill Cosby purportedly suppressed the availability of the 1930s shorts from television and home video for more than a decade. Eddie Murphy practically built his SNL career on the grown-up Buckwheat character. And now Whoopi Goldberg stars as Buckwheat's mom. I never saw this one, but seriously. Eesh. You guys say anything about it? or? No, no, I, I've never seen this. I'll tell you, but he has. <laughs> I I I don't even want to comment on it because I've not seen it. I don't know anybody's seen it. So there you go. <laughs> so same year, ninety four. Karina Karina. Ray Liotta of something wild and well nothing I give a shit about otherwise. Stars in this rare film from no name directress Jesse Nelson of no notable credits outside of playing Ralph in Mike Myers' amusing So I Married an Axe Murderer. He's a widowed single father and commercial jingle writer who hires Nanny Whoopi to deal with his, by now, psychosomatically mute daughter. Of course, the two bond and the kid starts to talk again, but not before Liotta and Whoopi get involved, and they and the kid face a whole lot of bullshit discrimination from 50s MAGA types who can't deal with folks who won't accept, as my drummer and former best friend put it before I burn that bridge, you gotta stick to your own kind, man. Yeah, fuck you, old buddy. Uh, so, Joan Cusack, who went from 80s teen sex comedies like My Bodyguard, Class, and Sixteen Candles to, well, 80s adult doofy comedies like Married to the Mob, Working Girl, and Adam's Family Values. Donna Michi of Trading Places from our Eddie Murphy show is Liotta's father, who literally died during filming, which we then wrote into the script. And Star Trek Next Generation's data, Brent Spiner, also appear. Don't believe the marketing claiming it's somehow a comedy. It's a fairly heavy-handed drama. But with the way things are running nowadays, more people probably need to see films like this that have an actual applicable life message. I can't say I liked it, but I certainly can't knock it. No, I actually enjoyed this. Um, I was quite surprised that um, watching it again for the show, I remembered, oh, I did see this, but not a long time. And then I, I, I enjoyed how much Ray Liotta is when he's, not doing a mob film? <laughs> no, when he wasn't playing somebody a little so complicated, you know what I'm saying? Um, for lack of a better word, he's, he's really he has great chemistry with Big Goldberg, and 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 it's really a sweet movie. And as a loving couple who grow who grow together, I thought it was really nice. And I'm surprised that this picture is in the lower wrong of favorite Whoopi Goldberg pictures. I, I actually think they work well together. It's a, it's a sweet film. So uh, next year, 1995, Boys on the Side. I'm sure there's somebody out there who wants to go across country with the whitest girl on the face of the earth, but it ain't me. Herbert Ross, who gave us the only movie to ever leave viewers saying Bab Streisand is kind of hot, The Owl and the Pussycat, which we discussed in our George Siegel show, gives us this mid-90s women's bonding film in the vein of Beaches crossed with Coyote Ugly and Thelma and Louise. I am not going over a cliff with you two, so just forget it. Whoopi is a failed cover band frontwoman, waiting to hear her lackluster desecration of Janis Joplin, and lesbian who decides to move to L.A. to give her career a boost. She answers an ad to rideshare across country with mousy Mary Louise Parker of the earlier mentioned stinker naked in New York. Along the way, they pay a visit to Parker's pal, Hollywood wildchild Drew Barrymore of Altered States from a Ken Russell show, Poison Ivy and Wayne World 2. And true to her life, she's a bit of a junkie with terrible taste in men. And when her latest shows up yelling about what she did with his stash, he starts roughing her up, resulting in their ganging up on him and tying him up. It seems like gay people are the only ones getting laid anymore. Maybe you ought to try it. I don't know. I like being straight. I think heterosexuality is going to make a comeback. 
Not if you have anything to do with it. Of course, being that kind of film, the guy dies from it, and Drew is knocked up by him. Oh, and Mousy Parker? Yeah, she's got AIDS, and Whoopi falls for her, and she goes for it, even moving in together. But when she spills the beans to some rando, Parker gets pissed off and kicks her out. My dream evening. Lesbians and cops. What's next? Republicans? Meanwhile, Drew winds up engaged to stoner cop Matthew, yeah, yeah, McConaughey, of the atrocious Jennifer Garner rom-com Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, who finds a selfie they took when they tied up her junkie ex and arrests her for murder, and she winds up in jail for a year. Parker dies of AIDS, good judgment Drew marries the asshole that sent her up the river, and since he has the absurd name of Abraham Lincoln, she names her bastard daughter Mary Todd. Whoopi continues on to L.A., yay? With a soundtrack that sounds like it came straight out of Lilith Fair. I mean, seriously, it's all butch females involved in a ridiculous, depressing narrative. You have to wonder, what the fuck was wrong with everyone in the 90s? I don't know, the early 90s were pretty terrible, but I thought the latter half of the decade was pretty cool. Maybe my memories are skewed, but I managed to avoid shit like this for 30 years. And I recall people and critics loved this. You know, give me singles or even the Doom Generation over this miserable turd bomb any day. Well, you know, Herb, Herb Ross was, was a... Uh... He was a dance guy, and you know he he went up directing and working on uh, Broadway shows where uh, uh, drama and dance was 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 part of the course. And then he started doing movies, and um, his movies were hit and miss. He he did a couple of early things in the seventies, <laughs> and then why they would entrust him? This was so out of out of. Out of his wheelhouse, out of character. Remember, out of his wheelhouse, you know, by this, you know, James Remar is one of the guys in this. I mean, come on. Matthew McConaughey, who I actually do like in quite a few films, it, it just really just fucked up the career for so many people. <laughs> because, yeah, some people liked this movie at the same time. It did nothing at the box office. It was really just a disaster all the way around. So, uh, 1996, Eddie. Here's an improvement now, a big improvement, actually. A fellow named Steve Rash, his only notable credits are Chevy Chase midget comedy Under the Rainbow, and the world's cleanest teen sex comedy, Can't Buy Me Love, gives us a surprisingly entertaining sports comedy that it appears everyone in critical circles despises for some reason. Probably because they also think Space Jam and North Dallas 40 are great works of high art. <laughs> Film back when the New York Knicks were like the Jets have always been and the Devils were back in the 80s, complete schmucks known only for losing, only followed by masochistic fans and white trash who just wanted to see a cheap game and razz the home team, usually drunk off their asses from day-long tailgate parties. This one features Whoopi as a, for the time, rather oddly female sports obsessive, who pretends she's a WFAN-style sportscaster, calling game stats and working color of the dispatch mic of the shitty taxi-style garage of the limo service she drives for. Her place is a bachelor pad-style dump, cramped, messy, and filled with sports memorabilia, and she dresses like a slob, unlike her hoary, low-class Italian-slash-Jewish girlfriend, who accompanies her to Knicks games, even though they keep getting kicked out of the mostly empty courtside seats they sneak up into, back to the nosebleed section, thanks to Whoopi's fairly typical habit of heckling the players and their inept coach, Dennis Farina. But as the fans love her because she's both one of their own and very much expressing their own feelings about the team, she lucks out and grabs the attention of new owner and bombastic media whore, Frank Langella, of my favorite stage and film, Dracula, also a Leslie Ann Down thriller, Sphinx, the Dolph Lundgren camp classic, Masters of the Universe, and one of my favorite Polanski films, the oddly Dario Argento-esque The Ninth Gate from Polanski Show, when she's called for one of those pre-game free-throw contests to be 
quote, honorary coach and sit with the players. When Nemesis Farina ejects her from the building for heckling the players' typically shitty performance, the fans go nuts, and Langelov sees a way to dump his losing coach and score some major media attention by making her the nominal coach in his place, while leaving the actual running of the team to long-suffering assistant coach Richard Jenkins of Sea of Love from Al Pacino's show. Of course, Jenkins is a milquetoast jobber only biding his time till retirement, while fangirl Whoopi is both a Knicks obsessive and PBA coach for ghetto kids, so she quickly gains the only in it for the money and perks teen respect, getting into their personal lives and showing them she actually gives a damn about them individually. By doing that, she whips them into a proper team into success. The usual Hollywood scriptwriter bullshit, where there has to be yet another major hurdle in the final act, hits when Langella decides to sell off the team while they're hot to a promoter who wants to move into St. Louis. But when Whoopi and the team get wind of it, they start to deliberately throw a close game and risk not getting into the playoffs, informing the angry fans of the plot and enforcing Langella to promise that he won't move the team, leaving them free to win the game and move on to pursue greater glories. Now let's be honest, I could give a fuck about sports of any type. I used to be an amateur bodybuilder, but none of the guys I knew who did it were interested in competing on stage, which is a very different thing in focus. Except with each other, like, hey, this guy got big since I saw him a few days ago, I better step it up. I mean, hell, we all spotted each other and encouraged the others, so I don't even know if that was really a sport, quote-unquote. So the fact that I was actually laughing and getting into this while watching this library discard with my wife, who brought it home as a joke when we first wound up watching a handful of these early Whoopi films, says a lot. Langello is likably amusing, as is Whoopi, her hoary friend, the fat guy who she always winds up sitting by in the nosebleeds. Hell, even a few of the players, most of all, are whom were real. I mean, personally, I only recognized Dennis Rodman when his team played the Knicks, but I remember the name Larry Johnson and a few longtime color men like Marv Albert, former player Walt Frazier, and Chris Berman. You also get a few laugh-out-loud cameos from boisterous former mayor Ed Koch, entertaining losers like Fabio Lanzoni, one of our CD treasures. We trot out every Valentine's Day as Fabio's CD masterwork, Fabio after dark, and rather hilariously in retrospect, future jailbirds and men behind the attempted overthrow of everything this country ever was or stood for, Donald fucking Trump and Bilbo Shop fanboy Rudy Giuliani. Trump, as you now know, was a repeat offender, having also showed up for the same year as the associate, also for Whoopi. I wonder if the two would have shared the screen multiple times if they knew where they'd stand 20 years later. The film is oddly credited as scored by fusion legend Stanley Clark, the basis for the Aldi Miola Chick Corea Lenny White Return to Forever as well as his own solo work best known for the School Days album, and yet there really is no appreciable score outside of a handful of hip-hop tracks, like Coolio, Swiping Lakesides All the Way Live, En Masse, and a pair of subpar House of Pain and Jodeci tracks. There's even one from Cisco's old act, Drew Hill, but the Coolio one is the only one you'll notice as they play it four times. Whoopi, hardly a likely sex symbol, repeated her recurring habit of banging her co-stars for a reasonably long term during and after filming, but unlike the more high-profile Ted Danson fling a few years prior, she stuck with Langella for five years. Hey, good for them. Langella was divorced the same year as Eddie, but unlike Ted Danson, it appears to have happened before Whoopi rather than caused by her this time, which, as we know from Ted, probably saved my hell of a lot of money. <laughs> What's your take? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember is, like, she made more pub- pu- publicity for banging Frank Langello, where everybody <laughs> thought it was like the super straight guy who played Dracula, and like suddenly the world took notice. Oh, <laughs> he likes black girls. Hey. You know? And she was like, she likes white guys. <laughs> and why should that even matter in the world? Exactly. Who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? And then the shit came out that like, well, Frank Langello is really big. <laughs> Yeah, she even said that. She even said that in a couple of interviews that she was doing like, she's like, he's so hungry. <laughs> I'm like, he's 
kind of old now, you know. <laughs> Even then. I was drunk, like 80, 80-something, you know. I want to think about it. You know, I've seen a bunch of these, like, old men do young, but she wasn't young either. So anyway. um, <laughs> This is 20 years after Draco, pretty much. <laughs> 20 years after Dracula. No, I, it's an enjoyable sports kind of thing. If you don't like sports kind of movies, it's... You'll still like it. That's what's amazing, because I hate yeah. sports. <laughs> there you go. What's next? So, I think it's the same year, 96, The Associate. Oh, my God, baby Newworth. I had a bit of a thing for her from Frasier, but holy crap, she is smoking hot here. The entire film, she's running around as a highly sex, gold-digging, high-class tramp in slinky, form-fitting black numbers and a merry widow, complete with thigh-highs and suspenders, as they say in the UK. She even tries to go down on Whoopi, though it's played for last. She thinks she's seducing the imaginary Wall Street power player Whoopi and Vince as her partner. But even so, wow. It's also one of those three or four films that contain a now hilariously ironic cameo from the fascist Christ and lifelong scam artist and huckster Donald Trump. Alongside... <laughs> Didn't you just say that? Yes, I did. <laughs> I'll say it again if you want me to. <laughs> yeah. Alongside lowbrow Midwestern kids movie Home Alone 2 and Sandra Bullock slash Hugh Grant rom-com Two Weeks Notice. As usual, he casually drops in in the lobby of a hotel, at this time during one of Whoopi's run-ins with the press. Hang on there, we'll get to that. <laughs> Directed by Miss Congeniality's Donald Petrie, there's that Sandra Bullock connection again, and I said we should do a show on her. The wife got me into her films big time, and apparently we are going to do one finally. Sandra? Yeah. Yeah. And Sandra Bullock coming up soon, too. The film, actually a remake of an obscure French comedy of about 20 years prior, revolves around Whoopi as a stockbroker whose sleazy partner, Tim Daly, the yuppie scum seduced and tormented by a satanic witch in Spellbinder, keeps getting all the credit for her work. When he scores a big contract after smoozing the clients again getting loaded at a strip bar, he gets promoted to VP in the firm while she's left in the dust. Disgusted, she quits and starts her own business, but all her contacts refuse to do business with her. Blackballed and broke, things only start to turn around when fellow firm expat and star of yet another Sandra Bullock film, Practical Magic, Diane Weiss turns up looking for a job. Being an executive admin, she has the right contacts to grease the wheels and get her on the calendar of elusive mogul Eli Wallach. Here more of a likably blustery George C. Scott type than the hopelessly mugging Tuco of his Sergio Leone films, which we discussed in our Clint Eastwood show. And here the real problem comes to light. It's not just her old company blacklisting her. It's that Wall Street is an old boys network by Gamergate, and they won't take a woman, much less a black woman, seriously enough to do business with. And this is a comedy? But if you actually get through that sadly all too realistic and depressing first third, the film actually does have some good laughs, as Whoopi decides to beat them at their own game by first inventing an elusive male senior partner, then pulling out white chicks with the most unconvincing latex makeover ever. She looks like a short, fat George Washington, seriously. Anyway, they now start throwing contracts at her, and her firms get so big, and the mystique of this barely-seen mystery power player so big an issue, that she, as the faux father of our country, winds up being chased by paparazzi, including the brassy Ethel Merman lookalike, and literal inspiration for Jack Kirby's big bard, Lainey Kazan, and deciding to fake murder the non-existent partner, first by claiming he was lost at sea in a boating accident where everyone actually survived, and then by dressing up a novelty store skeleton and filling his car with explosives, which results in her and Weiss winding up in jail as murderers. There's another final third twist where sleazy daily photoshops Whoopi in the George Washington costume into a photo with himself to get all their business, but she flips the tables by reappearing when the fake partner wins a Businessman of the Year award, then ripping off the cheap disguise to reveal surprise, you just admitted a black woman is one of the best of you. Roll credits. This one works when it finally does, more due to the minor characters, especially would be surprisingly effective drag queen pal, who looks enough at given times like Bab Streisand, Ethel Merman, and Cher to pass as any of them. Seriously, this guy is good at it. Supportive and effective gal pal Weast. 
Yeah, you know, some drag queens can really pull it off. And the sexy B.B. Newworth didn't ever do any of the main characters. It's too dead on balls accurate to be really funny until you get into the particulars of this whole imaginary character and he's getting seduced and murdered and so forth. But it's the effect of bit players and backup who lend what was otherwise a kind of a turgid watch its undeniable charm. If you can suffer your way through the first half hour or so, it's a fun watch and it's a few good laughs to boot. I always thought this was a pretty good movie. Yeah. And um, yo, you you said something about Lainey Kazan, who was like uh, this chanteuse that did like... Uh, she was a Broadway person, big Zoftig, uh She was a Broadway person. And then, don't kill me, but she she appeared in My Favorite Year of Peter O'Toole. Okay. And yeah, we, we mentioned that. And I was like, hmm, there's something going on there. Hey, Jack Kirby thought and, so. <laughs> yeah, she was like this... But to me, kind of like, you know, normally it's not my kind of thing, but I was like, hmm, let me get I'll pay more attention. <laughs> B.B. Newworth is interesting because she's like, she was like uh, born in Newark, New Jersey. And she was like one of these. Broadway dance stars, really. Broadway dance stars, but she also hung out with the punk. You no, know, she hung out with Iggy Pop. She hung out with the punk crowd. She was in the weirdest places at the weirdest times. <laughs> she was at Chiller like three years really? ago. Everybody was going, yeah, you missed yeah, that one, I guess, I being a big fan of her. Um, <laughs> she was very south, and everybody's taking great <laughs> pictures of her. Even my, my friends are like, dude, look at those pictures. They're like, oh, go and take a picture. They're like, eh, <laughs> well, you got a fun cast, Diane Weiss, Eli Wallach, Tim Daly. I mean, this is a Whoopi Goldberg film, not to be uh, dismissed. <laughs> yes, thank you. Not to be dismissed because it's actually quite good. It's actually it's 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 a pretty good film. So uh, also the same year, she was kind of busy around this time. Ghosts of Mississippi. For people who only got one thing on their minds, they sure got a whole lot of ways to tell you about it. Whoopi stars as the bereft wife of J. Medgar Evers, a civil rights reformer who, if you didn't know, was stalked and killed by some shithead white power segregationist. Here, wacky James Woods, famously stalked by the insane woman child Sean Young, who left a voodoo doll with a knife on it in his front door after an onset affair and some flop in the late 80s, and known for his sleazy roles in David Cronenberg's Videodrome, and um, we're going to do a Cronenberg show soon, Stephen King's Cat's Eye, and Sylvester Stallone's flop, The Specialist from our Stallone show. That don't encompass anybody but white Christians. All these other races and colors and creeds and sissies, they are anti-Christ. Many of them believe in human sacrifices and voodoo and such. And that's the crux of the film, where jury tampering leads to the proto-MAGA domestic terrorist being exonerated, only to finally be brought to justice the Simon Wiesenthal way, decades after the crime, when Whoopi convinces assistant DA and the shadow of his own self, Alec Baldwin, a man not without some unfortunate legal troubles of his own, to retry the case. I guess they never heard of Double Jeopardy? Directed by Meathead himself, Rob Reiner, who also delivered famed smoking turds like the unfunny but strangely beloved Spinal Tap, Sub Goonies post-Bratback affair Stand By Me, lame but oddly faux cult favorite The Princess Bride, and disturbing proto-torture porn misery, this is one of those depressing but, quote, important films mainstream critics and pompous old folks seem to love, but which leaves the rest of us decidedly cold. No criticism for trying to bring this sort of thing to the attention of the general public, especially nowadays, when it's all sadly quite relevant all over again. But it's not really my thing, now. Yeah, I, I, I have to respect how good this film was. I yeah. mean, you know, there there was a period, probably about five years previous to this, when there were a lot of these movies. Um, terrific one. Gene Hackman, Willem Dafoe, also took place in Mississippi. And Oh, like Mississippi Burning and Mississippi Masala and all that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was nice to see, you know, people throw shit at Rob Reiner. He's uneven, but, you know, sometimes he, he really 
sometimes he nails it. And I think this is a movie he nailed, but I also think it was a movie that people had seen this so many times. Sometimes people don't want to be kept reminding. It's not to say, don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not saying we should bury it. We know about it. Let's just move on because we can't move on. We're not, you're not black. I'm not black. We can't move on. But this has been done so many times, so powerfully. This is not as powerful as the other films that address the same situation. So you're left feeling, well, I was left feeling like it's not as strong as, you know. But that being said, nice to see Whoopi Goldberg in a role that was a bit different from what she's been doing for the past three or four or five years. And, you know, Alec Baldwin, you know, people throw shit at him. And that guy, that guy was good. That guy is good. I, I, I don't think he's a bad guy overall, but, you know, there's some questionable stuff right now that he's dealing with. Yeah, there's questionable stuff right now. And, and but I, I also think he's he's done a couple of really interesting movies where he's turned in some really interesting performances. So uh, I'm not abandoning him. Abandoning him. <laughs> Uh, where are we going next? So I was going to jump up a year to uh, A Night in Camelot in 98. You know, you don't really think about it much, but the world really changed dramatically around 1997, 1998. From a very analog culture, we went almost overnight from the days of AM, FM radio, print media, and Kodachrome to a digital tech world where the internet, digital devices, and fantasies like The Matrix suddenly became the order of the day. I know I went overnight from an effective Luddite who hadn't played a video game since the days of the 80s arcade and who mocked computers, which then were still dominated by the likes of the VIC-20 and early DOS-based Mac, to stumbling across and building a relationship with my soon-to-be wife a whole country away back in the earliest days of the internet when no one ever heard of such a thing beyond the NASA and scanny virtual dating services, which I wouldn't have messed with if you paid me. And it wasn't just this intended lifelong bachelor whose world got flipped on its head. Need proof? Check out films like the earlier discussed Jumpin' Jack Flash or The Associate. And this one, hailing from the year the internet broke, set in generations of folks plunging into the world of instant communication, questionable news sourcing, and free file sharing. Opening on, of all things, one of those magic static electricity plasma balls, also prominently featured in Wasp video for Love Machine a full decade earlier. The plot of this Disney TV movie rips off the old Bing Crosby chestnut at Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Substituting Whoopi as an ostensible scientist whose futuristic bric-a-brac includes a boombox, remember those? And dragging poor Michael York of the Three and Four Musketeers films, Murder on the Orient Express, Logan's Run, and Ruggiero Diodato's Depressing Phantom of Death, the first few discussed in our Oliver Reed, Sean Connery, and Jackie Bissett shows, and sexy adamant video vixen and gal pal Amanda Donahoe of Lair of the White Worm from a Ken Russell show, this odd kids film comes from the helm of a Roger Young of no notable credits. Roger Young directed Vampire Circus. Really? Yeah. Ah, I missed that one. You know fucking thing, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I missed that one. I mean, it's not the movie. I missed it in his credits. (laughs) Not criminal. Slaves bound for the market. It's as God-ordained. No, it's not as God-ordained. God didn't mean people to be property, Clarence. God meant for people to be free. Under the law, everyone is equal. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. More of an engineer than a scientist, her entire shtick is building them a gin mill before the Industrial Revolution. She knows how to create sticks of dynamite and uses chemicals and wiring to fake magic flying and smoke cover. Whoopi attempts to bring more enlightened contemporary humanist values to this backwards pre-Renaissance world. She even beats a scumbag knight with ties to sleazy right-wing schemer Donahoe in a duel by using judo and random dinnerware against a fully armor-cladded opponent despite not wearing a lick of same. It's all stupid and harmless juvenile fare, but at least it has a good message when we apparently need to hammer home again again in the decidedly backwards and anti-human era of MAGA. First is the notable knight's word against that of a common free man, thus his account is of no merit. 
Well, York appears to appreciate the campiness of the whole endeavor, performing the entire thing with an over-the-top, tongue-in-cheek, pandering tone that goes well beyond his work in a similar comic Three and Four Musketeers films. And Donahoe, while still attractive, is aged almost unrecognizably into a more matronly, ugly, milfy look. It's no great shakes, but were you really expecting anything from fucking Disney? You know, I never saw this movie. <laughs> I, yeah, I knew who Roger Young was. Hello, that's why he jumped in with, like, Vampire Circus, I know this guy. <laughs> um, it's a long way from that. <laughs> it's a long way from Vampire Circus. And a lot it's of, like how Fred Olin Ray is doing Lifetime films now. Like, okay, I guess you got to make the jump sometime for money. <laughs> well, you know what? These guys are making money. Yeah, that's it. That's what I never saw this, but, you know, Michael York is King Arthur. How did I never see this? So you saw something I did not. There you go. So I can't really comment on it, but it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's amusing enough for what it is. Did you see how Stella got her groove back? Oh, yes, I did. Uh, Ooh, so, 1998. Oh, you're sexy. Right. <laughs> How Stella got her groove back. Boy, I recall with no small shuddering that my then-widowed mother had an actual thing for briefly up-and-coming himbo Tay Diggs, who went nowhere after this. His biggest credit was in the film version of Rent, for whatever little that's worth. Helmed by TV director Kevin Rodney Sullivan, whose sole actual film effort beyond this appears to be the amusing if silly exploitation comedy Barbershop 2, this one centers on, of late, rather butch Angela Bassett, the muscular and very angry star of films like Boys in the Hood, Innocent Blood, Strange Days, Toby Hooper, Eddie Murphy Misfire. Wait, 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 wait. You don't like Angela Bassett? Here, in this movie? Yeah, but I'll get to that. Toby Hooper, Eddie Murphy, Misfire, Vampire in Brooklyn, and the surprisingly good Black Panther, also reviewed over at thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com, and open marriage husband of wimpy Hallmark's rapper and Fresh Prince star Will Smith. No question who wears the pants in that relationship. Hence is lashing out in absentia at doofily obnoxious midget Chris Rock over her continuing affairs with younger men. Speaking of which, maybe she got the idea from her success in this one, where she's, yet again, a fucking stockbroker. How many films in the 80s to present equate success with being a greedy shithead hedge fund manager type, having a midlife crisis affair with Diggs, who's half her age, during a vacation in Jamaica? At least she looks damn good in this one, so you can see the appeal. Fellow Boys in the Hood cast member Regina King, also of Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, and Sandra Bullock vehicle Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous. And I said, we should really do a Sandra Bullock show. My wife and I really love her films, and we're going to do that. We're going to do that. And it's worth noting that my man Victor Garber, scheming agent and father to Jennifer Garner in the likable alias and lovable Dr. Stein in the amusing Legends of Tomorrow, also gets a bit part herein. And he was also in Godspeed. Godspell, yes. He was in a lot of stuff. Godspell. Godspeed, Godspell. I was actually surprised at all the stuff he showed up in. Whoopi plays her usual comic relief foil as the best buddy who convinces Bassett to get into this whole situation, and it's at least as big a part as her psychic hotline scam artist and ghost, which is more than you can say for a lot of films she does from here on out. In fact, this may be her last comparatively major role until her own till just this year, and presumably the upcoming Sister Act 3. It's a sort of romantic comedy come travelogue with a few weird drama movements. You know, Whoopi fucking dies of cancer in the second half, if you can believe that. Drama moves for the ladies, and menopause will cougars at that. I can't say much more for it. I didn't mind it at all, and Bassett does look good in it. <laughs> Otherwise, not much for it, unless you're a menopausal cougar. <laughs> so what's your take? Well, no, I, I enjoyed it for, the, for what it was. I didn't read the book, obviously, but I knew it was a very popular book. It's a, a very popular film. Appealed to women. And the funny thing was, you know, Angela Bassett, which maybe we should put on the uh, sort of back burner, as I was watching this earlier this year, this ridiculous, really good women's revenge movie with Angela Bassett, Michelle Yeoh, and God knows a couple other women, and they were all kicking fucking major ass. I'm like, how was that? Oh, <laughs> this is great. What is this? 
Yeah, and and there were so many showstopper moments. I'm like, hey, how come only only you guys watching this? <laughs> yeah, I shared it. Like, you know, some of my friends like, oh, it's okay, man. I'm not watching it at the moment. I'm watching like twiddling my thumbs under my juice. You know, it's like, but what was the movie? She she can't remember the fucking name. <laughs> You're going to bust my balls, right? Okay. Well, you got me curious. I'm like, oh, okay. What's this? No, it was really good. It was really good. And it was, no, he would be, stay with me. Filmography. Gunpowder Milkshake. I've heard that name. I don't know anything about it, but yeah. Yeah, Gunpowder Milkshake. It was directed by a guy from who the fuck knows where. And it had Karen Gillan. Really? Doctor Who? <laughs> yes. Carla Cugino. Lena Headley, Angela, uh, Michelle Yeoh, Paul Giamatti, and this was so much fun. I got to see this, yeah. Yeah, you got to see this it, it, because it was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And it's sort of like I watched it three times. It's that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, back. back. <laughs> we we do this sometimes, folks. No, this is this is quite good movie, and it's uh, it's funny how this is like the tail end of this, you know, popular book that chick chicks love, women love, and a very very big bestseller. You know, men are shit, men are garbage, and uh, so it it was very popular in the movie theaters. What can I tell you? You know, men are shit, right? Aren't we? <laughs> Next. All right, so next up, speaking of which, Girl Interrupted from 1999. Whoopi closes out the 90s with a bit part as a sympathetic nurse in a nuthouse or a schizophrenic, technically speaking, borderline personality disorder, but it's the same exact spectrum. Winona Ryder of Beetlejuice, Heathers, and the questionable at best, Francis Ford Coppola Dracula, winds up after having a nervous breakdown and overdosing on drugs. There she shares the TV room with fellow whack jobs Angelina Jolie, already used to this sort of thing from her role as hot junkie model Gia Karanji, of the Tomb Raider films Wanted and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, eventual anorexic drug casualty Brittany Murphy of Clueless, and the depressing Eminem biopic Eight Mile, Scientology cultist Elizabeth Moss of No Notable Credits, wacky Jared Leto of the lousy Will Smith version of Suicide Squad, and the hilariously gay Morbius, which is reviewed over at com. I don't agree, but it's okay. And Blow Up in a Quiet Place in the Country veteran and wacky communist and PLO supporter Vanessa Gridgrave, plus recently disgraced Jeffrey Tambor, who also quite realistically portrayed a man going through a total mental breakdown in End Justice for All from an Al Pacino show. The cast, full of true-to-life typecasting aside, it's a depressing stinker reworking of Ken Casey's odd sociopolitical metaphor nuthouse film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, only without Nicholson or any hidden subtext about society to save it. Director James Mangold did give us the surprisingly good The Wolverine in 2013, which was, again, reviewed over at thirdeyesummer.wordpress.com, but it's all he did of merit, offsetting his lone overall success with a turgid wrist slitter Logan as his very next project, and dumping a career worth of shit like this on an unsuspecting public's hits. Gee, thanks, Jim. Fuck this film, and I like the early writer, and I totally love Angie, so to start the two of them together with then-cuties like Murphy and the always likable Whoopi, and still come out with a complete piece of shit is some kind of accomplishment. I disagree. No, it's it's uh, James Mangold. It's an interesting fucking filmmaker. He did Copland. Probably one of the best Stallone pictures there are. Didn't we talk about this? Yeah, we mentioned it in the show. In our, uh, he did Walk the Line, which is uh, one of the best uh, Johnny Cash biofilms. Yeah, he did Night that. and Day. 
which is unusual. Uh, Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz, I think. It's it's a very unusual Tom Cruise film, which we have to talk about one day. Yeah, we're going to Tom Cruise show. Yeah, he did Logan, which we evidently hate. He actually did the latest Indiana Jones film. We, are, we, we can't address it yet. It hasn't, it hasn't come out. Oh, how opportune. <laughs> <laughs> but this is... It's got a lot of people. Clea Duval, I had the hotspot in a couple of movies, and she's in this, and Winona, Angelina, and Brittany Murphy, and Elizabeth Moss. A lot of, a lot of good people in this, but I'm not quite sure how I feel about this film. I, I would say it's very, they were very, uh, they were very dramatic, and they were very stern in what they were trying to impart upon people. It's hard to say what the hell is going on with that. All right, so next up would be 2001 Rat Race. Scavenger Hunt meets Cannonball Run without a single laugh and filled with lesser and far more annoying celebs. John Cleese runs a casino. He decides to pull off a new betting pool for the high rollers where he sets up a mad bad world scenario, inviting a bunch of poor schlubs who just came in for the slots to race cross-country for a big cash prize that he sort of welches on. The names you may recognize, because there are several that nobody will, will include Cuba Gooding Jr., Buffy's Oz, Seth Green, Whoopi as a single mother who rather unbelievably arranges to meet her estranged daughter she gave up for adoption at a casino, the annoying John Lovitz, Sister Act and Hocus Pocus' Kathy Najimy again, the ever-irritating Jerry Lewis of England, Rowan Atkinson, who we dealt with in our Revisiting Bond <laughs> show for Never Seen Ever Again, Doug McKenzie himself, Dave Thomas of SCTV and Strange Brew, and cameos from Paul Rodriguez of Made in America from our Eddie Murphy show, one of the all-time worst Supermans, Dean Cain, and fucking Smash Mouth, who of course have to perform the only song anyone knows them for, All-Star. It's another Jerry Zucker production, but like the other one he did with Whoopi, it's one hell of a letdown from one half of the brothers who gave us stuff like Airplane and Naked Gun. Don't bother. Go watch Scavenger Hunt or the first Cannibal Run instead. What's your take? I, I'm sorry I never saw this film. Um, I knew of its, of, of its existence. I just was not able to catch up with it, but apparently you did. So... <laughs> Uh, so I, I I can't answer that. I'm sorry, folks. So the same year, here's another great one. Call Me Claus, another goofy Disney Hallmark crowd job. This time a Christmas TV movie where Whoopi is a grouchy home shopping network exec. What is it with that as a trope? Remember Eddie Murphy's Holy Man? Who is the chosen one? What is this, a holiday golden child? To replace Santa Claus, Nigel Hawthorne of SPYS from our Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland shows, who's ready to retire. Apparently, Garth Brooks was behind this as executive producer, so you know exactly what audiences aimed and marketed to. TV drama director Peter Werner of No Notable Credits helms this extremely typical, quote, heartwarming Yule Turd gift, likely set on fire by prankster neighborhood kids right before they ring your doorbell hoping to step in it. Do yourself a favor and don't. Can you believe our man Victor Garber of Alias and Legends of Tomorrow is in this? It's funny. I was just going to mention Victor Garber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually watched this for the show, yeah. and I was like, oh, it's not like peeling your skin off my fucking arm. <laughs> but, uh, in a painful manner, folks. I'm sorry. Um, but but it's... <laughs> we all need a little, like, liberty, right? Yeah. Uh, but Especially when it comes to shit yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. There we go again with Godzilla. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're watching something and you feel like the skin is ripping off your fucking arms. Like, yep. you know where it's coming from, right? You're like, who's taking that? Who's taking my skin off? 
Like, like, am, am I drunk or like, am I a meth? No, I don't do meth. So, anyway, if you watch, <laughs> I hope you're laughing. <laughs> and if you watch a movie really this bad, sometimes you feel like your skin's just like rolling off. Yeah. Like a bad sunburn. I understand it, trust me. <laughs> but there's, there's no sun out there. So, like, you're home and it's dark. It's like, why am I skin peeling? <laughs> so, um, so. <laughs> I feel that with some of these dramas, I'm like, oh my god, what am I watching? And especially these Hallmarkies, like things like this. Yo, yo, I, she's a fine actress, oh, yeah. and she's trying to get work, and and I get it, they made this thingy, but it's like you, sh- <laughs> yo, exactly. It's a, it's like, okay, is there a reason for for this to exist? Yes, <laughs> if it's Christmas Eve. You and your family might enjoy it. I don't think enjoy it, but they might put it on on you. You're like, oh, God. Case closed. Give me, give me, give me yeah. another drink. And they get through this somehow. What's going on in the other room? Uh, so a couple of years later, I think this was. Two years later. Good Fences. TV director Ernest Dickerson delivers Monique of Soul Plane, Danny Glover of Escape from Alcatraz from our Clint Eastwood show, Lethal Weapon and Predator 2, and Whoopi as a black couple who move into a stiff 1970s white Connecticut neighborhood. If you always wanted to see Glover made up like a crust between Bill Cosby and O.J. Simpson, humping away frantically at an aging whoopee while the two of them go on orgasmically about his getting a crappy job so that she can get a nice purse, have at it. The only thing worth seeing is a Marie Cruz as a friend's Japanese mother who blows their son for his birthday. Seriously. P.U. And I think the disc that I saw it on, it was actually like a Showtime special or something originally, and it had all these things on it, like, you know, not for viewing, not for sale. They sold it. They sold it to somebody. They sold it to the libraries. <laughs> Horrible. Wait, wait, wait. Tell me about the French-Japanese girl. <laughs> <laughs> what was this called? Good Fences. I can't find it anywhere. God, well, probably, who knows where they got this damn thing from. But, yeah, it was horrendous. I'm sitting there horrified watching Glover humping away. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're going to get this crappy job as, like, a bus driver. I don't know what the hell it was. So you can get a nice purse. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm like, really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and all my research, I, I did not find good fences. But <laughs> French-Japanese girl kind of goes, no, me. She's <laughs> an old lady. She's, like, painting or some shit. And she invites the kid over and like, has him pose for a second. And then she goes and blows him. I'm like, Okay. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, I missed that. Oh. Anyway, it's a stinker, so I'll bother. <laughs> All right, I won't bother. Next. So after a whole lot of shitty like voice acting for uh, Disney-type movies and Pixar movies and showing up in things like The Muppets as a cameo or whatever, she does a documentary on Mom's Mabley in 2013. Bar perhaps her work on The View, where she's always entertaining and down-to-earth, but fairly centrist, you wouldn't really think of Whoopi Goldberg as especially political. But even beyond her appearances in The Color Purple and Ghosts of Mississippi, she's done a few reasonably political deep dives into black history and culture in recent years. Most recently, her Think Now in Theater's docudrama on the unfortunate Emmett Till, and this straight-up celebration-slash-semi-documentary on, of all people, sassy baggy-pants comedian Moms Mabley. As someone who grew up amused by this woman from her TV appearances and her sole film, Amazing Grace, which we talked about in our Blaxploitation show, I gave this one a watch and found out a few things I wasn't aware of. Firstly, that she was rather groundbreaking in a few ways, being one of the first black comedians back in the days of vaudeville, commanding what is even now a ridiculous performance fee, and headlining over the likes of Cab Calloway and Miles Davis. 
that she traveled in exalted circles in the 60s, hanging with and faded by the likes of Sammy Davis Jr., Martin Luther King, and both John and Bobby Kennedy, openly speaking to her widespread multiracial audience about civil rights, and a few likely but unconfirmed things about her personal life, that she bore two children she gave her for adoption, both the product of separate rapes, not that you ever know that from her persona or act, which says a lot about her inner fortitude and outlook on life, and that at least back in the 30s, she appears to have swung lesbian, generally slicking back her hair and dressing like a man with ladies on her arm when not performing her patented savvy old bag lady shtick on stage. It's far from essential viewing and amusing in retrospect given Bill Cosby's participation as one of the interviewees, but it was interesting and I did learn a few things that lend more respect to a goofy but to my eyes marginal figure from my youth. So I don't know if you saw that one or not. No, I did. I did. And I was was, uh, quite glad that it was made and uh, nice that, uh, you know, it's, it's nice that we get to view somebody who went all out to show us a actual representation as far as I can ascertain and put together of someone's life that we didn't know really too much about. Yeah. And apparently, like you, we, I, I was surprised. I'm sure you were surprised. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> yeah, who knew? Right. Yes, exactly. So, right. Very well done. So the year after that, in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, one of the 20th reboots, very late in her career, Whoopi wound up making an effective cameo bit part in this pathetic stinker of a kid's film. More by hideous-looking, even frightening CG redesigns of the X-Men Teen Titans crazed satire come multi-million dollar franchise, which went from a black-and-white indie comic to a popular cartoon show, a ridiculous number of video games across multiple systems and generations, and two entertaining of stupid live-action films with surprisingly decent period soundtracks featuring the likes of Technotronics Ya Kid K, top-tier British dance diva Sandy Dennis, who actually did uh, a song for the Spice Girls, and schlocky white-bread rappers Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer to a pair of hard nostalgic cash-ins of which this is the first. This grim, unfunny, and strangely even more juvenile crap fest features fart jokes that wouldn't make a fan of Captain Underpants laugh, horrible and already very dated CG that makes the goofy rubber suits of the original films from the early 90s look like they were directed by Akira Kurosawa or Peter Greenaway, and cute but overrated yuppie masturbatory fixation Megan Fox and some nobody who looks like an especially cadaverous Christopher Walken as Turtle Pal and <laughs> roaming reporter April O'Neil, and the corporate baddie cooperating with the Foot Clan a cheap knock on the also then popular Frank Miller's Daredevil Electress Ninja Clan The Hand, who showed up in the TV series Daredevil, The Defenders, and I believe Iron Fist as well. Whoopi, who claims she only did this for her daughter, shows up for two brief scenes as April's disbelieving boss, who cans her after her second attempt to convince her of the turtle's existence and the machinations of Shredder and the Foot Clan. Let's not beat around the bush here. The first two films are amazingly stupid, even downright dim-witted. But they have fun, very era-appropriate soundtracks that, like the first Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack, were actually pretty good on their own merits and feature some big names of the day. And if you're in the mood for some Double Dragon, Master of the Universe, or Mario Brothers live-action sort of 80s unintentional comedy, they're lots of fun. This one just plain sucks. <laughs> so did you subject yourself to it? Yes, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> it sucked big time. Yeah, yeah, it, it... Nothing in this work for me. <laughs> Sorry. So that's really it until this year right now, where, like I mentioned, she's doing a biopic of sorts on Emmett Till, the fortunate uh, kid who dared to whistle at a white girl down south and got hung for it. And I think this was in the 50s or something. It was before civil rights, I believe, but still within living memory. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, Whoopi Goldberg is involved in the uh, film about Emmett Till and his demise 
story goes that he was a young black man who whistled a young white girl and they did horrible things to him they kept him tortured, to burn him fucking torture him fucking they couldn't have an open casket funeral even because they didn't recognize his face was just all yeah 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 it's awful fucking white maga motherfuckers exactly um, that's what it is too yeah, that's what that's what's going on. That's 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 your antecedent. That's that's what this all goes back to. Yep. Don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> oh, trust me, we can go on for hours about that. Yeah, we can go on for hours about this. Uh, maybe one day we we can have a show where we can go on for hours about <laughs> shit like this. We actually did a couple of those. Those uh, I called them something like COVID or whatever the hell. We were yeah, catching up and we, we did shows on like we did dumb like, Trump we special. Did like we were so pissed off, we had to just like let it all out. COVID There's like stuff. three or four coronavirus specials, and like, that's you know. <laughs> so, so Whoopi is doing or planning on a uh, Sister Act three. At this time, nobody has any information about it except that it's going to happen, maybe. And uh, cool, you know, if it happens, that'll be nice. Um, I think it will. Yeah, I think I, the idea was you saw how well Coming to America came out the recent one that Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. So you know. Yeah, yeah, like, you know. Sometimes some people revisit things after a period of time of being off the grid. She was off the grid for a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes people come on like, hey, you know, like this is what's going on now. This is what's going on then. And It's like I said earlier, I think her career kind of parallels Eddie's in a lot of ways. And yes. So, exactly. like, well, it worked for him. It actually was pretty good. So maybe it'll work here, too. So. Exactly. We'll see. Yeah, well said. Well said. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, maybe Whoopi Goldberg can work a resurgence in her career like Eddie did. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested. We just spoke about this, but Eddie can do with Beverly Hills Cop four. Yes, I'm curious and, about that. Um, and I hope it's not like three. <laughs> no, it's four. It's four. Yeah, I know that, but I mean, three was terrible. One and two were good. But <laughs> three wasn't terrible. It was, it, Even he said it was really bad. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't like John Landis. So I can't yeah. figure that out. So it's all right. Um, <laughs> so anyway. So anyway, that's our show. Yes, and uh, next time we will be doing Wesley Snipes yes, to, to close out our de facto unofficial Black History Month celebration. Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Whoopi Goldberg. Next week, uh, we will be doing Wesley Snipes. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Of course, we're on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. Uh, look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, the ID is 5534-02044. We're also on Spotify and Amazon Podcasts. Again, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, and you will find us. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. <laughs> so uh, anything else you want to close out on? Or? That was a mouthful, dude. A piece of tissue? Oh. <laughs> especially with my throat being sore and everything else like, oh, that's a lot to spit out there <laughs> um, no no it, uh, <laughs> we are wicked bastards but um, 
No, the Wesley Snipes show is coming up. It's not a joking show. It's uh, He's done some really good work, and we want to reflect that. So before people are like, oh, you're doing Wesley Snipes. No, we're really doing Wesley Snipes because there's some movies you want to really recognize. Uh, he's, he's done their positive pictures, and uh, just like this uh, Whoopi and the show we did before this, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. we'll do Ain't a Denzel Washington show. You never know. <laughs> oh, wow. Fuck, you never know. We've covered a couple of Denzel films already through these you know, the other shows we've been doing. Yeah, but why not, right? Denzel's crazy. <laughs> Anything's possible. That's it. You never know what's coming up. You never know Where what's coming up. But thank you so much for listening, and thank you for keeping the faith, because I like yeah. how we keep metamorphosizing be- between every season. <laughs> we do different shit all the time. And- yep. And we have fun. Yeah, we start off doing like genre filmographies, and here we are doing individual character actors, and then we're doing <laughs> people you would never expect. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's good because it makes you and I rewatch these movies that these people yes. did, and like, hey, we're reevaluating their movies, yep. and hey, these are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I like that part of it. You know, like some of you say, I would never watch the associate. You know. <laughs> I, should. I, I won't watch that movie. <laughs> and you're like, hey, you know, you watch it. I watch it. It's pretty good. And the fact that I enjoyed the hell out of Eddie was like, that, that's a, actually the tipping point when I says, you know what, we should do a Whoopi Fish show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I like shit like that with her in it, this is a lot. Of everything, Eddie. Not even Jumping Jack Flash, but something called Eddie. You know, it's like, you know. A sports film. It's a sports film. Yo, so, yo, hey, we respect Whoopi Goldberg. Girl, go what you're doing. Do That's what it. you're doing. I support you. Did a lot of good stuff. So Yeah, you did a lot of good stuff, and, and I know where you're at. So mm-hmm. more power to you. And please turn turn into us for turn tune into us for our next show. <laughs> I don't know if they could turn into us. We're kind of unique. Tune into us. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time for Wesley Snipes. And we got lots more stuff on tap. Uh, like I mentioned, we're talking about Richard Benjamin, Sandra Bullock, and John Belushi, and crazy stuff coming up. Plus, we got some things you might expect more, like Cronenberg and De Palma. and Spielberg. Uh... We're going to Spielberg. <laughs> I, I'm going to torture my co-host on a fucking bed in the old. Like, no, don't, please don't let me watch this. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, you're going to watch this movie. Don't make me watch Amazing Stories. <laughs> but, uh, no, I haven't watched some of this list. Color Purple's bad enough. No, there's, there's, there's good stuff out there. No, no look, I, I will say this before signing off the show. Never be just in something because you, said, because you heard or read other people hate it. Yeah, because a lot of stuff is actually pretty good that they hate right. and stuff that they love is shit. Right, right. Like I said about Oscar films. And, you know, like, um, I haven't seen... uh, Please don't get me wrong. This is not a comment on this. There's a lot of hate and like for Halloween Ends, the new movie. I saw half of it, and I was surprised it was actually not that bad. It kind of tried to harken back to the old... You know, yeah, from yeah. the first two films. There's a lot of people that hate this thing. And there's a lot of people that like it. There's a lot of people that hate it. And like, hey, we, you and I have been doing this for a long time. And it's like, you can't pre-just in something. You can't go with the flow. And the flow is like, everybody else hates it. Well, so what? So what? <laughs> you, you have to watch something. I've been saying this for years. Exactly. If you didn't see it, how can you make a judgment like that? 
And in terms of uh, Halloween Ends, you if you don't watch it, you'll miss Jamie Lee Curtis delivering with gusto a line like, uh, what was it? You got Sometimes you just got to rip your tits out and make them go for it. <laughs> I, 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 you very well know I, I got a thing for Jamie Lee. So. Like I said, I'm, in my old age, I'm getting more of her affection for her in a lot of ways. <laughs> Jamie Lee show, Jamie Lee show. Hey, we could do it. We could definitely do that. <laughs> oh, pencil it in because, like, I'm like, Oof, yeah, trading places. That was what we... did it. I was like, well, okay, not that wasn't the film, but it was like, holy shit, I'm really enjoying her a lot of stuff, and what a body. I didn't realize. You, know, like, you don't see it too often. <laughs> At least not like the way you hear it. So it there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but no, no, it's something too uh, perfect and. Uh... Oh, perfect was great. I always liked that one. <laughs> And uh, love letters? You have to see love letters. I've heard that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it dropped out of print or something, so it's kind of harder to get. But, but yeah, if you, if you see, see that, that. you'd be like, "Well, wifey, leave me alone." <laughs> <laughs> well, in any case, uh, <laughs> I will pencil this in for pencil uh, this. show. <laughs> oh yeah, we we're gonna do a show on Bruce Lee. Jeez, we got a lot of stuff coming up. It's interesting. We got a lot. We got a lot. We got a, the biggest, largest collection of stuff going on that ever before yeah it's true this is actually really hitting the iron really hard as people who follow third eye cinema might notice things have slowed down a bit there and i still try to keep things relatively regular but it's not like it was because i'm spending most of my time watching and reviewing movies for this <laughs> so there you go and and sometimes probably in the spring we're gonna do a peter fox colombo show oh that'd be great i tried to get you to do that a couple of years ago <laughs> yeah well, i just recently got the box set so yeah. Yeah. now i can reach up <laughs> eventually he's right it was like when I watched Canon I'm like man a lot of episodes now. yeah but I have to watch all the other stuff <laughs> exactly. anyway thank you so much for listening to our show yes and we will see you next time for Wesley Snipes yes <laughs> that was a good one
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the career, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, and television. 
more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. God to go? <laughs> That's it. I'm your God to go. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, you have no idea what kind of week I had. It's, uh, all kinds of shit happened. Um, you know, somebody told me the other day that a whole bunch of planets were simultaneously in retrograde. And, you know, I don't buy too much into that horoscope shit. Just retroactively looking back at things. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, this is my birth sign and, you know, the time of night that I was born and all this shit. It does kind of align with a lot of stuff that is true to my personality and how I turned out to be, you know, in retrospect. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go looking at the friggin' horoscopes every day and say, oh, what's going what's to happen today? But, you know, a lot of it, there's something going on there because I don't see how they would get all this stuff. It's not just the usual, like, oh, yes, you're looking for a girlfriend. Oh, you, know, you will get a good job. No, this is weird stuff. So, And it also kind of applied to my wife and it applied to some friends that I knew. So I kind of buy into it, this much of it, because I'll tell you, this last week was fucking awful. It was actually the worst year I've had since before I met my wife, which says a lot. Uh, I mean, not the whole year, but just this last week was incredible. From from Saturday through, we had one good day. She was off because she had worked on Saturday. But everything else surrounding it and after it, and it just kept getting fucking worse. Wow. Uh, I don't really want to get into the whole thing, but some asshole had hacked my oldest email, the one I've had for like you know, 15, 20 years. I should have gotten rid of it a long time ago, but I had so much storage in there and information that I didn't want to you know, have to remove it somewhere else. And uh, you're going around, and people's idea of cybersecurity sucks. I mean, it was great. I went right away to, because something happened, so I went right away to the cars and the bank and all that kind of shit, and everything was cool. And the bigger places, you know, all the, the big sites that people use, everything was fine. But one of them that was, uh, you know, a store that you sometimes do, like, you know, pickups to. You can order ahead, and then they bring it out to your car or whatever the hell. And fucking site was so stupid. And this happened with a couple others afterwards where they say, okay, you know, I, I can't get access to my email, which would happen. I found out in the morning because I'm like, I tried like six times. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Why isn't it letting me into my email? And uh, my wife's like, I just wait a little bit. Maybe you got locked out. So I go back in. Same shit happens. There's like, can you contact them? No, whatever. So I kind of gave up. I said, okay, well, this email's gone. I don't know if I got hacked or if I accidentally deleted it. We were kind of tossing that around. I was like, well, I don't know what happened here. So comes around to mid-afternoon and I'm on the line with somebody from this exact store, as it happens, about something else. It was like an order that they didn't quite put the whole thing through and something happened. It was supposed to, they're like, okay, well, you pick this part up, but we don't have this and we're going to deliver it to your house and whatever the hell. And it was supposed to show up that day and then it didn't and it's like a weird delay. So I'm like, you know, I'll just do the chat with them and say, okay, what's going on with this thing? You know, I don't understand. And I'm like, oh yeah, we have a problem with a third-party seller. A big convoluted mess. All right, fine. Whatever, we're going to credit you that amount. No big deal. Don't worry. Okay. While I'm online with them, there was a thing for, I don't know, I lost my password. I was going in to change my emails because I didn't trust what was going down everywhere. You know? And most sites, well, okay, a lot of sites will let you do that. Well, this one didn't. What it did was, oh, to change your password or change your email, rather, it wasn't even the password. They had to send a confirmation link or whatever the hell to let you do it to mm. the hacked email. Oh. So as soon as I click it, Bing, I get a notice from my credit card. Somebody just tried to charge $1,100 to that specific Ooh. site. I'm like, holy fuck. So, of course, you know, I talked to them. I stopped it there. 
and that was all cool. But then I had to go like, well, what do I do about this site now? And obviously, you guys just been compromised. Like, oh well, we can't really change it, and you know, we have to do it over the phone. We got so I'm calling people now from the entire rest of the day, 24 hours straight. I spent on this, and I, I like you know go to bed late anyway, and we kind of get up relatively early. So this is literally probably you know 20 hours or you know 18 hours worth of phone calling fucking people and going around all these sites changing this info making sure the son of a bitch has no access to anything anymore i don't know what he got while he was in there but you know obviously he got this one account and they had my info in there which was like really i need this i don't even know how i got in there but regardless so i'm calling and calling and dealing with those fucking people meantime same week these people had apparently moved in upstairs. I thought that there were more renters because the guy that lived up there was an asshole. He used to be on the, uh, the town board. He was like the building inspector or some shit, which made it tough because he was always a problem. <laughs> and he kept renting the place out. And at one point he had to move in there because he was disgraced. They, they kicked him out and everything else. And he couldn't get a job anyplace. So he was living here in a place that he used to rent out. But that was only temporary. So all these people are moving in and out all the time. And every time they move in and out, construction noises all day and night. Bam, 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 bam. Right. All right. So I don't complain because I'm not that kind of person. I don't want to get shit from other people, right? So I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting. So this guy, this person moves in, and I'm like, what the fuck is this woman? Like a t- 100 tons? Storming on. Boom, boom, boom in the ceiling. And then in the middle of this, dropping shit that sounds like a refrigerator. And I swear to God, I thought it was going to come through the ceiling. Right? And this is going on. And they start playing bad rap music and blasting that. Boom, 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 boom for hours on end, right? But, you know, it's during the day, so I don't say too much for a bit. Well, then it just got to be too much one day. I'm like, this is fucking crazy. Something's going to happen here. Because the whole house is shaking. And so I complained to my local board people that I know a couple of. I says, look, you know, I'm not the kind of person. I'm not a fucking Karen here. You know, can you do something about this? Because this person's going to wind up dropping something from my ceiling, and there's going to be a problem. In the meantime, I think around the time I sent the first email or just after it, then it's 6.30 in the morning. I'm waking up to her because now she's up there, boom, 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 over my head in the bedroom and blasting shitty dance music or something. I'm like, I don't get up that fucking early. I don't need this. And then, like, within a couple of days, it was 1.45 in the morning or something or, you know, somewhere in that hour. And we happened to still be up just because I was, like, hyped up on coffee and this whole deal with dealing with the hacker. And crash, bam. And my wife's sitting like, what the fuck is going on? The whole place is shaking. I go and walk into the kitchen, and I swear footsteps follow me right over my head. Boom, 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 boom. Crash. Bam. What the fuck is that? I think people in other units in this building have to be hearing this next to her. The person below me heard it. I ran into somebody recently, a couple of people that are on her floor that were complaining about this. Like, yeah, they're always making those crazy noises and blasting all the shitty rap music. And, you know, there's all this, like, smoke smell coming out of it, which, you know, it probably means smoke smoke, not, you know. Uh, cigarettes, uh, <laughs> you know, and they're like, geez, what the hell's going on? These people suck. And they had just moved in. So I go back and I says, look, you know, I was actually thinking that night about calling fucking cops on them. I was like, I'm not this kind of person, but you know, you guys got to do something here. So, okay. I hear back that the super talks to me a bit. He heard about the things like, yeah, I'm checking into it. I can't get access to this place. They don't want to answer the door. They like, I can't get them on the phone. It's like, yeah, they're figures. So this is going on for a couple of days. Well, in the meantime, this, I think it was like Friday night. He comes knocking on our door. He says, yeah, you know, the management agency was like, yeah, we're getting all these complaints going back and forth between them and you and the, the people above them. Apparently, this idiot, I don't know if they were just projecting like a fucking Trumpster, you know, like everybody else is evil, not them. 
but they, or maybe they're just retaliating because they knew it had to be one of us that was complaining about them. So they started complaining about the people above and below them. Like, oh, yeah, they're making all this noise and whatever, and you know, we need to do something about this. So like, oh, yeah, you know, we got to go inspect all the units and this crap. I'm like, what the fuck? Are you... All right, whatever. So now I'm, like, back yelling at these people again. I was like, you know, should I have called the goddamn cops last week and shut you guys up? Because the only thing I got on record, she's just going right to the management company. Um, the only thing I got on record is talking to you guys, and I lost those emails because this fucking hacker. You know, what do we do here? And we were going back and forth right up until this morning because we had a doctor's appointment because that's another story. Apparently, a friggin' insurance company no longer covers getting shots at CVS. I don't know if I mentioned that. No, uh, no, you didn't. No. Yeah, they just pulled this out of the blue. I'm like, what are you talking about? I did this for like a decade with the last couple of jobs and everything. I always got my shots there. And we got other shots like COVID and other things that you just come up. No problem. They cover it all. All of a sudden, suddenly, it was, oh, no, we don't cover flu shots anymore. We just got an email from them saying they're not going to cover anything from CVS or Walgreens or anybody but going to the doctor. I'm like, what the fuck? So luckily, the guy was like, you know, not too busy, which is unusual because you know how we just talked about that last week where you put the books on like three months in advance or whatever. And he got us in this morning for both of us. So we're over there dealing with this, and I'm still getting these emails, you know, from these people that I know saying, oh, yeah, and they showed me one of the emails that she sent to the, the people. I'm like, this person is fucking delusional. What the hell are they talking about? I'm like trying to make everybody else like they're the problem child, and whereas everybody knows it's her. Well, anyway, finally, I. On the way back from this, I've been sending these emails or whatever during this doctor's appointment and everything else. I run into the super again. He's like, yeah. I went up there and saw it, and they were like, yeah, they really want to resolve things. And they went right away, and they ordered, I don't know, some new carpet or some shit and whatever. I was like, all right, you know, I don't care. I'm not like a, an asshole here. I just want to get this nonsense stopped. I don't want something coming through my goddamn ceiling. I certainly don't want to be waking up to them, and I don't want to hear them banging around at 2 in the morning. You know, I'm a late mm. night. I don't like get it. But, you know, at least keep it till you know, I think the board rules are something stupid, like 8 or 10 o'clock. I don't care about that. It's like, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good until midnight. But after midnight, keep it fucking quiet until, like, you know, 9 or 10 in the morning at least. At least the other people, when they were up there banging around with the construction, did that stuff. But this one, no. I'm guessing and hoping that this resolves things. So I'm like, all right, well, look, for now, I think it sounds like they're trying to fix things. So I'll let you know if anything further happens. And they've actually been sort of quiet for the last couple of days in terms of banging around. So hopefully it's all over with. And again, is this all suddenly resolving because these fucking planets went out of retrograde? Because, you know, they don't last. They never last more than like a couple of days to a week. Mm. I was like, but holy shit. It was really bad. So if my voice sounds off, that's because I've been screaming my lungs out. I'm literally freaking out here. Like, the whole fucking world's out to get me, and I can't do nothing about this. Plus, we had other problems, too, but that was the main ones. Like, I literally, I'm just like, I've never had a week this bad, and I've never been this freaked out where it's like, you know, all this shit's coming out of me that I should just kind of deal with and laugh off. You know, like I said, since, I don't know what the hell it was, 25, 26 years ago before I met my wife. And when I got kicked out of the house and all that shit, that's how bad this was. Like So anyway, hopefully it's all over with and all resolved. We'll see. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. I've had a fucking crazy week. Yeah, that, well, that's like I was talking to you last week about the uh, crazy fucking neighbors from across the street. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, the, the, uh, the Indians. You no. Know, yeah, the Indians. It's like, what the fuck? You know, that guy kind of got quiet. It looked like I see a landlord guy who's not one of the people who apparently are living upstairs. I, I recognize a lot of them. I'm like, he must own the house. And he's like, he's having a lot of people do a lot of work on the on the first floor in the basement. I'm like, that's what happened here. You, are you restructuring these apartments for like 10, 15 people? Because you know, that's, <laughs> that's not big, legal. 
That's not legal either. And I'm thinking, if I see like 30 fucking people out there doing la 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 la, I'm gonna fucking <laughs> buy a gun. My 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 buddy at work, he's become um, uh, my friend at work. You know, I went in I went in this week and uh, he had to help me with some tech stuff. And what are they called now? They're not survivalists. They're um, oh, those militia people. Uh, what the hell? Yeah, yeah, them? yeah. The preppers, preppers. They're called mm-hmm. preppers. Did we talk about this? No. And I'm like, what? He said, Lou, you got you gotta buy iodine. Iodine oh for nuclear holocaust. <laughs> yeah, I said because I, I, I was going to work the other day and I shared this thing on, on Facebook and I you know, I'm like, What the fuck is this? <laughs> this is kind of not subtle. Yeah. In case of radiation <laughs> I'm like, uh, radiation follows a nuclear blast. Yep. So so <laughs> That's number one. Radiation is number two. So he saw that. He goes, I have to show you. I want to do, you have to help me because I know you do a podcast show. And I want to do one for my Spanish-speaking people. Yeah. I said, what are you talking about? Preppers, Lou. You know preppers? No. <laughs> Sit next to me. So there are very few people at work nowadays. So show me all this shit. They're survivalists. They're now called preppers, prepping for you know what. And I'm like, fuck. I grew up with a bunch of them. One of the guys that used to work with my father, and I used to work with him in summers, was like that. He was like, apparently, and he's kind of believable because he was nuts. He was like an ex-Vietnam guy, which is true. And he had become one of these crazy survivalists. And he's like, yeah, you know, I got like gold buried out in the desert and a motorcycle, and I got a bunker out there and all this shit, and I'm just ready for all this shit to happen. Like, what the... He lives out in the Pine Barrens, so he's got he's got uh, solar, mm-hmm. got several fridges, he's got uh, several uh, generators. Mm-hmm. So he says, "Look at these." I said, "Fuck, you got an automatic weapon." So all you have to do, Lou, all you have to do is get a gun license. Very easy. You get a gun license, you buy a handgun. That one gun license, you entitles you to one handgun and any rifles you want, including shotguns. Mm-hmm. So he shows me his purchase, like, what the fuck? I have to protect. You know, they're not going to want to be after your family. Mm-hmm. When the grid goes down, he's like so hardcore. He goes, when the grid goes down, they're going to want your food. Yeah, that's true. Food, water. Yeah. So I'm like, jeez. Uh, <laughs> he's the guy that posted on that thing the other day he's, to remind me, buy these iodine tablets. And they're like, <laughs> if you're re- they're like, don't take these unless you have radiation poisoning. You know, like, yeah. Okay, you know. You know, I've been saying for years, as crazy as that is, and as nuts as this guy probably is, that when we actually do have those kind of things, I don't, I don't foresee it in the near future, let's put it that way. Hopefully. But when, when we actually do have, you know, future wars, they're not going to be over territory. <laughs> they're going to be over water and food. Right. Oh, look, these guys have a production means, and they have clean water. I'm like, okay. Yeah, but, yo, come on. I mean, it... yeah. taking cinema out of the equation, if... <laughs> We are attacked by whoever yeah. and wherever. A nuclear blast blows out your windows, <laughs> blows out all this shit. You know, you're gonna die of cancer. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna die of cancer. It's, you know, it's if like, you aren't vaporized. Really, <laughs> yeah, if you're not vaporized from the blast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you survive the blast and you happen to be out of the range of the blast, so you take these things unsupervised until you finish them up. And then you're screwed, yeah. And everything's going to be like the purge. and yeah. Especially when these fucking Republicans go on and saying, oh, yeah, we want everybody open carry all across the country. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's really smart. Good idea, guys. Thanks. 
Does he realize that, you know, other ones do this? Like, I know for a fact a friend of mine fucked All she wanted was a case of beer. <laughs> really? Yeah, come up and party with me. Just bring some beer. Okay. It's like, yeah, man, I fucked <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. Uh... Oh, and there was another guy that was a dealer there that used to yeah. give him shit for nothing, basically, just to give him some heroin. Because <laughs> he was a I junkie. I remember, <laughs> I did this thing with... And she called me, and I'm like, he's telling me all these stories and how dirty and nasty she was. And I'm like, oh, uh-huh. do I really want to be listening to this? You know? <laughs> and then he went on to my... <laughs> Yeah, and then he went on to my... Dude, I don't know why you're sharing this with me, yeah. but... And as you, as you could tell, I'm not repeating it to you, but I was just like, this ain't cool. <laughs> nah, because, you know... He's fucking well-known as a Lifetime and Hallmark Hall of Fame film director now. He makes his Christmas movies that make him coin. Yeah. You know? And that's fine, but uh, don't do your dirty laundry with me. You know, it's like, I, I don't know you that well. You know, it's not right. You know? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned that. Yeah, I could see that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's other ones, too, that I question. <laughs> yeah. One of them, yeah. yeah, yeah, but that, yeah, the stories were true, and I think he knew. Yo, she would also show up at shows with these young guys. They're my agents. Like, they're like 25. And I'm like, I've never seen them before. I don't even want to think about how this happened. Yo. Yeah. And I can imagine where it's going. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so today was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be like, meh, years old. So, uh, not old enough to die yet, but. Hey, I'm really sorry you're having such a difficulty. I I know what this is like, you know. Uh, seriously, uh, I aside from the crap I talked about last time, mm-hmm. if you recall, years back, we're talking seven years back, because we've been doing this show for a long time. Yeah, I used to live in another house. We had a beautiful front first floor apartment with a beautiful big yard which I dug, mm-hmm. and I had you know two people come look at the apartment. Eleven are living upstairs, and they were so loud. I did the old grandpa thing, and I was younger back then. I'm talking like, you know, I was a younger guy. Yeah. i take my fucking broom, banging up the door. Bang, 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 bang. Knock it off. <laughs> I'd go upstairs, knock on the door. What are you doing? Holy shit, you got like 10 people living on this floor. <laughs> you have no, nothing in your beds. What's the problem? The problem is it's 2.30 in the morning. You guys are running around and chatting like it's crazy. They would be outside my door on the stairs on cell phones. Yeah. I'm like, I open my door. What are you doing? (laughs) I'm talking to my friend. Go in your apartment and do that. You're right outside my fucking door. Go inside. (laughs) And they look at me like, what am I doing wrong? I'm like, you motherfucker. (laughs) And I just, yo. So I, I hear you. I Yeah, this is what makes people lose shit, too. It's true. It's true. It's, that's what happened. I basically got to the point where it's like, I can't fucking take this anymore. You know, it's like the next person. The, the, remember I told you that story? Maybe I didn't tell you that story. A long time ago when we saw that Doors tribute band, the Soft Parade. You did. Yeah, yeah, you did. yeah and I, it was like what I said to my buddy. It's like, the next fucking asshole that goes and bumps into me, I'm going to lay him out flat. And this guy smacks into me. And I turn around and have my fist like a mid-swing. And I'm like... Oh shit, it's Russo. <laughs> I laughed then because I was like, okay, he's doing his Jim Morrison shtick. And I just dropped it. And I, was like, I caught myself mid swing and let go. I'm like, fine, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, that's where I, I was I, at. I mean, even beyond that, I was like, seriously, like, ready to explode. I'm like, I'm going to go up there and do something I don't want to do. So this is not good. You know, somebody's got to lay off me here. 
You know, all the years, all the years I've been going concert going, the only time, well, there's been a few, but the only time I got, it got, it got to be fisticuffs time, mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Of course, would have been the Sex Pistols reunion. Oh, okay, that makes sense. With at Roseland, okay, with the uh, Glenn Matlock doing Sid stuff. Every otherwise it was the whole band. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know. They didn't have Lydon, right? I I didn't think he would do that. Really? Yeah, John Lydon. I'm shocked. Okay. John Lydon, you know. Steve Jones, the whole group, yeah. Steve Jones, he's a fucking great guitar player. He actually is. He's He's very solid. powerhouse, yeah. He was a sound guy. What a show. And I was there with wife number uh, (laughs) one or two. Okay. It got it was a it, Roseland was a big place. You know, it used to be a dance hall, yeah. and then you know they would have they saw Jeff Beck there. You know, they would have bands playing there, and there were some bands I was really in uh, punk bands that would play there. Like really, and you know, it was all right. You know, I would stay in the back with the punk bands because it would get kind of chaotic. Uh, yeah, we used to go a lot of punk shows. The problem with her is, you know, how she is, and she's like trying to get up into the friggin' like, the pit. I'm like, are you crazy? You don't, you don't get in that damn pit. You know, look how little you are. So I'm spending the whole time like holding her back and blocking them. And you know, you know how you like when you're at the edge of the pit, you have to kind of elbow them back in, and make sure they don't hit you. <laughs> yeah, right. So being me, it was like, but this is like, when are you gonna see? It was '94, I think. It's like when are you gonna see them again? Let's get close. It was insane, and there's just a bunch of drunk guys who start coming up to your girl. I'm like, come on. Oh, jeez, yeah. Come on. And banging into me. I'm like, what, you're going to – that's my wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not banging me out of the way. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. And I remember when we stayed for the whole show. It was great. Mm-hmm. I will say that. It was a great show. And when we left, there were guys near the entrance of the lobby – passed out on the floor like like <laughs> 10 15 people and i just looked at them like and i looked up at the bouncers and they're like shrugged like yeah we'll have to wait for somebody to come get them <laughs> I'm like, damn yeah punk shows can get crazy <laughs> so yeah yeah so uh yeah that's that's yeah. listen to it let me know how it sounds and we'll go right on to whoopee let's make whoopee all right so <laughs> let me check us out <laughs>